All right, Power Athlete Nation, before we get into this episode, we've got a word from our sponsors. John, what do you got? I want to give a shout out to Steve's, who makes some of the best beef jerky I've had in recent years. As you know, I'm a big jerky snob, and this stuff is good. What I like about it is how simple it is. As I've always said, the best beef jerky is usually the simplest beef jerky, and simple and easy. As I can attest, the big beef jerky brands use sugar, fillers, and subpar ingredients to cut corners and lower the price point so they can sell at a premium, but not Steve's. He uses the highest quality beef jerky with zero sugar, a few carbs, and a simple recipe based on natural ingredients, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. On top of having some badass jerky, Steve is also a family-owned business in South Jersey. He started with a simple obsession, make the best portable protein snacks on the market. And Steve is also a power athlete himself and follows the Grindstone program. So I love their tagline. When you're at the top of the food chain, eat like it. If you guys want to give it a try, he's throwing us out a 20% discount code. So use Power Athlete 20 on your first order and see exactly how good this stuff is. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Brian Peters' career in various professional football leagues is fascinating. It has afforded him exposure to many different training methodologies and recovery practices. This sparked a passion within Brian that led him to focus on the connection between physiology and mental focus. He attributes his longevity and edge in the sport to precisely that. Here it is, episode 539. So, dude, so what's going on? Uh, fill us in. I mean, I haven't seen you since uh, Winter Storm two years ago. Uh, were you, you, no, but you were at uh, uh, you were at Sornex this year for Summer Storm, right? Or did I understand? No, no, I, I didn't make it down this this okay. year. I was uh, I was uh, prepping for like workouts and that kind of thing. So, how's that all going? Uh, it's all going, man. Uh, I've been out for a little over kind of like a year and a half. I've worked out probably five or six times. Then I actually. Uh, I just got to work out with the Texans a few weeks ago as a long snapper. It's always been like a back pocket thing for me, but um, just my last season came came off some injuries and that kind of thing. So I'm just knocking on the door. How you feeling? Dude, I'm good, man. Body's good. I've been uh, kind of demoing a bunch of like strength and conditioning programs, that kind of thing, finding what works. Um, but yeah, dude, if I, if I can sneak in as a snapper and steal some more years, man, I'm all about it. <laughs> dude, uh, I always had a dream of at least at the end of my career, that I like, I could steal for at least one or two years. You know, I, I was a starter for my whole career. I'm like, you know, maybe at the end, I could just be like that good veteran guy that helps get the young guys ready and just play for like a year or two. And uh, unfortunately, I never got that chance. Yeah, it, it's interesting because like uh, I, some of my buddies, they're like finessing training camp. Like they talk from like a position of leverage where like, yeah, I'm going to be the locker room guy and that kind of thing. And I just never had the leverage to do that. I was just scrapping and clawing at the bottom of the roster. Yeah, no, I went from uh, starting 16 games and then going in and, um, you know, then my 10th year I got hurt and I was like, man, maybe they'll just keep me and uh, I can just be a good locker room guy and help those young guys and fuck, that didn't happen and uh, fuck, that was it. So um, I like and I remember seeing older guys do that and I used to joke, I used to pull my shirt over my face like this and be like, give me the money, give me the money, you fucking thieves. And they'd be like, yes, I'd be like, good for you. You know, like uh, when I think I was in when I was in Philly. Um, I think it was like my fourth year, we had a guy, Jim Pine, come in, and Jim had been a first-round draft pick, played for Cleveland. It was like in his 10th or 12th year. They brought him in as a backup center, uh, you know, maybe potentially start, but then the young guy we had was pretty good. And, dude, he just prepared and chilled and stole for two years. And I used to joke every day when I saw him, I'd be like, come with a bandana. I had, like, cap guns. I used to shoot at him. I'd be like, give me the money, you thief. 
And uh, he'd fucking laugh. And he'd be like, dude, one day you hope to be this good. I'm like, it'll never happen to me. They'll never let me do this. Oh, dude, guaranteed. I mean, that's I mean, that's the dream. But like, dude, some of the best teams in the league, they they carry that depth too for when shit does happen. Like you see, you see those guys step in for two, three games, and then it rolls into another season of the same role, and that that's where you get some momentum. But again, you got to be in the right opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it seems um, you know with uh, with salaries and the way it works that like uh, that doesn't exist anymore. At least it, it you know I've noticed within the last ten years that. You know, keeping guys around that are pretty good veteran guys. It might not be an every down type of player. They just don't seem to do it anymore. Or maybe at least I'm just not noticing. No, and especially even like uh, they used to do it on special teams too. You like you like they a couple guys would do one or two special teams, and that'd be part of that backup role. And then now it's they're trying to get young guys in, like develop them early. Like you you don't want like an older backup now. You want to have like this long term investment payoff. So it's kind of, it's definitely it flipped kind of like I guess probably. Everybody was saying like my first year in, so whatever that was, 2015. Mm-hmm. So it, it is what it is. But um, so, now with all the salary cap issues, it's going to even get forced even more to that. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, it's insane, uh, and it only goes up every time they get a new TV deal. Um, take us on a journey, man. Like uh, like where did this all start for you? As I was going to prepping for this, I was looking at like your road to the NFL. And I was telling Tex today, I'm like, dude, that is an unconventional. I mean, I I went to Berkeley, I got drafted, went to the Eagles, and you know was a starter as a rookie, and kind of went through. And I was looking at yours, and uh, I really haven't seen anybody follow that track. It, it, yeah, it was, it was banana. You want the Spark Notes version, or you want like the long, uh, long like, snapper version? Yeah, give me the long. Like I I like details. Uh, right. I'm I'm big on details and and pieces. So yeah, man, I'm. You know, yeah, stretch your legs yeah, I kind of like picked up some everywhere I went to, so it kind of ended up being a cool little story. But um, so went to Northwestern, like came out of really good high school, Pickerington Central here in Columbus. Um, but got to Northwestern, eventually worked my. I was a safety at the time as well, so got there, earned playing time as like a redshirt freshman. Rolled into like being a captain and like all Big Ten, uh, first team all Big Ten, led the Big Ten interception. So I thought I had a chance to get into the NFL. Um, some people said late rounds, some people said, like most everybody said like undrafted free agent, but you'll be signed. Didn't get a fucking call on draft day. The only person that called me on draft day was my agent and Pat Fitzgerald asked me what was going on. And eventually, uh, worked into some like tryouts at rookie mini camps, went down to Tampa Bay. And so I'm, I'm going in as a safety. And so it's, uh, Shiano's first year down in Tampa and, we're for our rookie mini camp. We're running two a day, so practice in the morning and night, and we're running strength and conditioning in between uh, practices. So the second practice on the first day, so we practiced, we lifted, we ran ten hundreds, and then we uh, went to the second practice, and we had three outside linebackers, three sandbackers pop hamstrings. Oh no! So, oh, so I was the biggest safety at the time. I was like six three, two fifteen. They put me down at Sam for like the last four practices. Is, uh, um, I played with Barry Gardner, who uh, you know was second round draft pick out of Northwestern. I mean, uh, shit, Northwestern's a, a you know football school. I'm surprised that you know all Big Ten and that not even getting a sniff. What was the what was the knock? Um, probably like my my forty when I came out, like it was kind of trash, and then um, like I, I ran like a high four six. Um, some people had me a low four seven, and that was I mean that was probably the knock. Then. Um, 
yeah like I, like I wasn't strong when I came out either like I, I broke my hand three times in my last like year and a half plan but at least those are my excuses in the story I tell myself but um whatever like it, it, it didn't show up so um so anyways uh after that like I've so then I went to the Bears training camp but I perform performed really well at those camps and like they had Mark Barron come in in Tampa and then they had this other third round pick out of Oregon State in Chicago and like I competed with everybody so like I was like all right I know I can play so like that kind of kept me going through the whole <laughs> the mess of the the journey that I went on but um but when I was in Tampa like we were how, obviously doing helmets and that kind of thing and I had Brian Cox as a linebacker coach when I was down there and mm -hmm. I had and we had this opportunity I had this opportunity where um I kind of slipped under this guard on uh posto and I like fronted up the the running back but I didn't like hit him and he goes like he goes would you hit him there I was like yeah I would have knocked his head off and he goes well, I don't know that like you should never pass on an opportunity to be physical and never pass an opportunity to like give high like high motor effort so I took that um went to Chicago did the same thing kind of happened but then so my agent didn't want to send me to the CFL because at the time you had to sign a two-year deal so he goes um go out to the arena football league for a few weeks they had like four weeks left in their season he goes use that to cover and stay in shape I was like, all right, whatever. So I drive out to Des Moines, Iowa with the Iowa Barnstormers and I, I show up and I think I'm already on the team and I show up, but it's a 13 man tryout for two spots. So go through the whole tryout, um, was made the team, was getting paid like 350 bucks a week uh, before taxes. And then, um, but it, that was some of the most fun football I ever played. Like you're slamming people into walls, like, <laughs> like fans are talking shit, pouring beer on you. It's, it was absolutely phenomenal my position was this jack linebacker where i just start on the short side of the field i clear run and then i run horizontal anybody like you can hit anybody at any depth so like i just i smoked guys and had fun doing it nice and then um from there i went i was working like three jobs in chicago just paying the bills at the time living on like my buddy's couch and then uh i went then the ufl became an option so the ufl was still around so i went out and tried out for the omaha nighthawks um made their training camp roster, had a good training camp. And then once NFL had their cuts, um, they signed like 20 NFL guys and cut, cut me in the process. So like now I'm cut from a league I didn't want to be in anyways. So, well, what's, um, I, so like, what's the competition like? Like, I mean, I, I never, you know, I played in college in the NFL and I was always curious, like, like what's the competition in terms of these other, uh, is it like, like you went out there? I mean, you, dude, you, you played in the NFL, you played at a high level, you played a high level college. Are you out there and it's <clears throat> kind of like, uh, you know, are you, are you like, man, these guys could play in the NFL or you're like, oh, these guys are fucking dog shit. Um, a couple guys, like it's more the skill positions that like had the ability as opposed to like the bigger bodies, like the bigger bodies, like the hands and feet and the physicality wasn't always there. Um, the CFL is the closest across the board. Um, UFL was decent, but it was kind of like a good division, like a good college team kind of concept. Mm -hmm. Um, but then you had like some stud skill players and like n never really had any great quarterbacks either, but then, um, but yeah, so like, but there, there's like, I'd say like 20% maybe could had an opportunity like, and could compete at least. And then, um, but then, so anyways, from UFL, like I came back, thought career was over. Um, my agent kind of like like ghosted me for the most part he said he like he said he sent emails and calls out to the cfl and to the nfl nobody responded so i was like dude just give me the emails so i i wrote my own email and sent my own college highlights to everybody in the cfl and nfl with like hey i'll be a dog for you that kind of uh concept and um 
The only team that responded was Saskatchewan Rough Riders in Canada. So uh, went up there for the, like that. So that was my whole first year out. I was in three leagues my whole first year. out. I went up there, signed on their practice squad for a few weeks as their season was wrapping up and signed a two-year deal uh, for the next two years in the CFL. And then the day I get back from Canada, I go out with my buddy in Columbus. He just got cut by the Patriots, Jeremy Ebert. And we get, we get wrecked and I end up getting jumped by three bouncers. So I get my jaw broke, teeth uprooted. Um, it was a mess. And like, so, th- but this is where, so like, uh, you know, Dr. Eric Serrano, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So he, um, he's from, he happens to be from my hometown, like Pickerington, Pataskala, Ohio area. And I had met him a few times in high school when I like popped my groin and had a deep thigh bruise and couldn't run. Like he got me ready to play that week. And so like, I knew he was special. And then like one of the first times I went over to his house, like Jeter was at his house for the Ohio state Michigan game. So I was like, Oh, this guy's got like some skills, some pull, whatever the hell. But so that night, like, so my mom ended up calling him after I was at the hospital and all that mess. And he got this surgeon to come in like two and a half hours at three in the morning to do the surgery. And then like, after like a week on the couch, I dropped 20 pounds, um, on a liquid diet, sipping Percocet out of a straw. And then he comes to the house and says, get your ass up. We got to go train. And so I spent six weeks after that with my mouth wired shut training at his house every day. And by the time I got out of there, like I was heavier, stronger, faster than I was like before I walked into there. So that was cool to see. So like, that's where I kind of learned about strength training supplements, all these things. And I actually went back and did Northwestern's pro day, um, like a month or two after that. And all my times dropped, like I was, I was faster, stronger, all that stuff. So like, I found what did you do for what did you do for your training? Like, what was so special that Serrano was doing? I mean, what voodoo? Um, you know, I mean, I'd met him numerous times. I've seen him present at Sornex. I've spoken to him, but uh, he wasn't necessarily in my like performance circle. So um, I'm always yeah. curious about what he does. Yeah. So um, initially, like, I kind of had no idea. Like, I didn't really understand his concepts. But then, like, at, like so it ended up being like a lot of unilateral strength training, um, a lot more hypertrophy volume stuff than I had done in college. Like the college is the five by five method, all that crap. And then, but we spent a lot of time, time under tension, a lot of, a lot of lat strength, um, a ton of development of the lat muscle because he, like, he's a believer that like, that's what ties like the momentum of our upper body to our lower body. So he like believes that like lat strength is paramount in, in sports and transitioning um, strength from lower body, upper body as well. Um, but majority of it was leg strength for me. Like we didn't, like I had, I had popped a hamstring in college. So like at Northwestern, they, like I wasn't even allowed to squat my last two years because they considered me a hamstring guy, quote unquote. Wow. But then, um, then he does a lot of like the isometric contraction connectivity stuff where like you're firing your glutes, hamstrings, calves, and feet at the same time. So I spent a lot of time under tension there and build up like like you remember those uh like the hamstring hangs you did the sore neck deal mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah they were cool yeah so those and then like we built that up to where he was throwing med balls on my heels and then like he was doing react like as i was under contraction he was pulling on my feet and having me like my nervous system react but like the big thing was like um like my legs got uh super strong through um like we were doing great like more hypertrophy supersets where it's like anywhere from like 12 to 20 reps but then the th- paired with the time under tension and the strength training unilaterally with the Bulgarian split squats was like his paramount deal, which everyone does. But, um, oh. uh, I was getting to the point where I could like hold hundreds, um, for 30 seconds at the bottom, hit three reps, drop them, and then do another 30 seconds with three reps after that. 
And like that was kind of, and that applied to a lot of his lifting methods. So that worked phenomenally for me. Um, didn't have any hamstrings after that, that kind of thing. And I've kept certain things uh, from that along the way. And then I did a shoulder in college too. So I always did his shoulder stuff where um, just weird above the head, um, developing rear delt, um, full range of motion on the shoulders where it ends up, a lot of his stuff just leaks into that like kind of 45 second plus under tension window mm-hmm. where like I've learned now like that there's this weird lactic thre- acid, lactic acid threshold and strength that kind of like fatigues around that point. And so I kind of live there in a lot of the stuff I do now and it's been, and it's worked for me. But um, nice. yeah, like a lot of his stuff is just incorporating muscles firing together. Like you, like you're working groin adductors, like you're squeezing a med ball between your knees while you're doing the hamstring hang now and all these things. And then, or you're like working these cross functional lines where you're pushing and pulling at the same time and the core is being developed. And so all that just, again, made me more sound made like the, the leg strength I knew I was, I was weak on. So I think that's where my, like my speed and explosion and quickness uh, improved drastically again. Like I, I ran and like the second time I ran, I ran high four, five, low four, six, um, as opposed to the high four, six, low four, seven. Um, my broad jump the first pro day, like I, so I was 215 my first pro day, I was 233 my second one. Um, it was like nine three to 10 three, like things like that, which were massive. So I was like, all right, there's something here, I'm gonna keep doing this shit. Um, and then, so, yeah, then I recovered from the jaw, went back to the CFL. Um, they actually put me on practice squad because pretty hard to make the team up there as an American. You basically have to be a starter because you can only have 24 Americans on the team. Hmm. And then, um, so the only time, the reason I got to play in Canada is because obviously, you know, the field goals on the goal line up there. So um, this other, this like weak side backer um, was covering a post route by this tight end and he ran into the field goal, broke his collarbone. So your, your boy got his opportunity there. Nice. Um, and, and, and then just kind of never. What a fucking never, idiot. Yeah. <laughs> should have been standing there yeah what a dick (laughs) yeah but so anyways uh like i balled on special teams up there uh did uh really well on defense as well um got some opportunities to like but so like after that second season my contract was up um the some nfl teams contacted my cfl team about working me out but my cfl team didn't know who my agent was because i had contacted them so put him in touch with my agent. Uh, and then my first workout with the Eagles um, is that you killed your workout. But um, while we we're doing your blood work, we found this issue. It's probably just a lab error, but your platelets are crazy low. And so anyways, so I go to Serrano's office. He tests me again. My platelets are super low again. So um, I start going through this like battery of tests, like, like spleen screens, like all these like organ um, ultrasounds and that kind of stuff. And um, cause initially like low blood platelets are a sign of like some variation of cancer and that kind yeah. of thing. So, uh, anyways, uh, ends up, I find out I have this w- rare blood condition called ITP idiothrombocytopenia, unexplained low blood platelets. And so the Eagles won't sign me. Um, I go and work out for the saints and I, I, I kill the workout. I run again, a high four five. I do a six, six, three cone. Like I, I, I long snap, I do all these things. And like, I got Terry Fontenot, who's the GM for the Falcons now, saying, hey, we're going to sign you today. And But, but oh, actually, we got to get this blood condition uh, in order. So they're about to have me sign an injury waiver um, that if I didn't heal from any injury on time, they could cut me without pay. So, oh, like, ham, hamstring, concussion, whatever, that like, broken bone, just because yeah, it's a blood disorder. That'd be a no for me, dog. 
yeah so i said no uh my agent at the time uh wasn't really doing much didn't give me any workouts besides the ones that called the cfl so i actually fired him had a new agent he got me three workouts in a couple days when worked out for the vikings didn't tell him about the blood disorder they didn't find it they didn't care and then uh so signed with the vikings um had a good preseason there um had a couple interceptions in the preseason they put me on practice squad and then um like week three uh i got a call from the texans my agent he's like hey go to the airport and um so like the vikings were trying to keep me on their practice squad for full salary like full guaranteed active salary nice. so i kind of had this decision to make whether stay for full salary where i have some leverage or go because like if you get signed up a P squad, you only get three guaranteed games on the team you sign with, but so that you like an accredited season. So I kind of like I'm at the airport, like got like a double Jack and Coke making this decision and talking to my people. And so it's either go did, gamble on. Did anybody ever um, recommend like papaya enzymes? Um, they use yeah, those so to, I, yeah, to boost platelet counts. Yeah. So I did papaya, dude. I was eating like six full toma- raw tomatoes a day. Yeah. I did the holistic approach. They put me on pregnizone and like that. So my platelets are like between like usually like 45 and 65 where like healthy is like 300 plus. Sure. Uh, the pregnizone got me up to a hundred. And then um, this, when, when that didn't work over a few weeks, um, this doctor, he goes, yeah, go take Promacta. And so I was like, okay. And like, so I'm again, I'm under CFL health insurance at this point. And I go to the, uh, whatever the, uh, prescription place, the, and they're like, this the is pharmacy. a $1,000 cancer drug, <laughs> um, $5,000 for a yeah. month of Promacta. Yeah. I was going to um, say like a thousand like a week or something crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And, uh, I go, I was like, man, like I can't afford this. And so this, this angel of a human, she goes, come back in an hour. So I come back in an hour and she gives me like a free month of samples. And she goes, don't tell me I did this, but like, good luck to you. That kind of thing brought her back some flowers. She's a superstar, but, um, that got, so that, that got my platelets up to back in like the 300, 350 range, but like it, it wasn't sustainable for me to pay that at the time. So I, like I did it and I, now I know I have a, at least a weapon to combat the issue. If it becomes an issue for the NFL, sure. um, didn't end up being an issue, but, um, so anyway, so I I'm sitting in the airport trying to make this decision. And one of my buddies, like like Dan Percy, is a quarterback at Northwestern for a while. He's a stud, but had some Achilles problems. But uh, he, like, I'm on the phone with him. And he goes, "Dude, what the fuck are you doing?" He goes, "He goes, you you played three years in three different leagues to play in the NFL, not practice in the NFL." And I was like, "All right, fuck it, I'm out." And because like my parents were saying, telling me to stay, my agents like, "We have leverage. They're going to get you up as soon as they can." And I was like, "No, nah, I'm out." And then so I go down to Houston. Um, I had a buddy down there, John Simon. Uh, he like I he'd been tra- I've been training with him at Ohio State for a couple off seasons. They the Ohio State strength staff kind of welcomed me in because I had some buddies from high school that went there. So that was a blessing. Coach Slagle let me train with their NFL group for free for again a poor CFL guy. It was phenomenal for me. That kind of changed the tra- trajectory of my training because they were just crush heavy weight, get like strong. That that was phenomenal. Um, would you, I mean, we, we found the exact same thing when I went down, uh, my first off season to Tampa and I trained with Raphael, we had like a really dope training group. And, and within like four years, we had like 20 dudes showing up every single day and like the competition and the elevation of just like the lifting, not only the training, the sprinting and the running and like, you know, the, uh, accountability of fucking showing up and killing yourself, uh, pretty fucking amazing to train in those groups. I think people under, um, 
Like I, uh, they never gave me an off season workout deal anywhere I ever played. So I never trained anywhere in the, uh, I never trained with the team in the off season. Yeah. And like my deal was like, man, if you guys aren't going to pay me, I'm like, well, you know, give me an off season workout deal. And they're like, no, we know you're going to work out. I'm like, well, fuck, I'm not going to work out here then. Yeah. And, uh, but so we ended up creating these groups, but man, it's, um, I think it's so underrepresented, like how important it is to have like-minded individuals that are doing the job and you're competing with those guys every single day. So that when you go to training camp, it's like nothing's changed. I always, uh, I always caution dudes about like going into isolation and just training with their fucking weirdo trainer and it's just them and they don't have that, that like camaraderie interaction and that competition. No doubt, dude. It's, it's, it was so, it was incredibly powerful for me because so like, again, I'm walking into like Ohio state's NFL group where, uh, like the main guys I trained with were, so John Simon, who actually just signed with Tennessee, Corey Lindsley, who's like the highest paid center out in San Diego now, or sorry, LA with the Rams. And then Nate Ebner, who is incredible runner, like obviously played nine years with the Patriots was went to Olympics and rugby um and then so like that was kind of like our core group then Zach Bourne who's one of my buddy he plays a fullback there like had a cup of coffee and or a cup of coffee with a few teams but um so that was our like core group and then you had like the the Kurt Coleman's the Lauren Itis's and those guys around as well but then so like and all these guys are stronger than me so like obviously I'm pushing myself from a strength standpoint Anthony Schlegel who's a head strength coach at Jacksonville now is always been a savage always been pulling 600 plus off the ground and is fucking boots and car hearts and shit and then um so but then like so i kind of like so me and nate would run together and then like i'd lift with all the big dogs and dude it was phenomenal for me I, like that that was the strongest i've ever been the most conditioned it was just a it was a really cool group it's kind of this made a little bit um ebner still like ebner's actually coming over to hit the sauna and ice here and some workout stuff in my house here in a little bit but um yeah so i still i still have to have that group around me and i but i also have to have structure too like just being accountable to show up at 7 a.m. with that crew six days a week was just, it was huge for me. And even this, now that I've been out of sport for a year and a half, I know I need structure. I can't just like, I'll work out at eight, the workout bleeds for two hours and then it turns into like eating and supplementing and showering and all that shit. And now it's one thirty, and I don't have like, and I've let the day get, get away from me. So structure and people around me are, are massive. And, um, yeah, and the, the, we all, I mean, those guys are at least most of those guys I trained with my entire career. So it was good to like kind of get back. Everybody knew the, the lifts and like kind of like, like we, we loosely followed structure. Like some of it was um, Ohio State stuff merged with some of my Dr. Serrano stuff. And then it turned into like we, the boys started dabbling in a little bit of the conjugate method, that kind of thing. So it just, it, 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 it elevated everybody, which is really cool. And then, um, but anyway, so I get down to, get down to Houston. Uh, so I have John Simon for my lifting group. So I kind of have like a comfort zone. Dr. Serrano actually represented Brian Cushing in his first little ordeal with the NFL. So I had him down there. And then, so like, that was kind of my, I fell into this lifting group that was allowed to do their own thing outside of the team's deal. So I fell into a good training program down there. And then that, uh, that was good. I, I balled my first season. Um, I led the, uh, the what NFL. Year was this? Well, this what was year? 2015. 2015. And so, uh, so that year, like I only played 12 games uh, that year and I led the NFL and special teams tackles had a really productive season. And nice. then, um, yeah. And then, then from there on, I was there for, there for four years, ended up as a special teams captain. And uh, yeah. And then now I've, I, I tried to get some tape in the XFL last year, but the, like I didn't sign until like the week before they shut Trump shut everything down. So 
And then, um, then, so now I'm trying to do the, the long snapping deal. And if anybody needs a, a vet, but at this point, like my last, my last season, I played on a bum ankle that they misdiagnosed. So like I, I was playing special teams on a, like, I couldn't feel anything from my ankle down. I, I probably took 30, 35 shots to the ankle that season. And then, um, I, I, I switched agents again. Cause I wanted to, like a bigger agency. And uh, he was telling people I didn't play hurt. He didn't want to correlate 30 and hurt with all these guys. And it ended up, I had special teams coaches actually calling me saying, hey, what happened last year and that kind of thing. And I was like, that I was playing on no ankle. And they're like, oh, well, you might want to tell your agent that because he's telling everybody you're healthy last year. So part of the problem that was kind of, that's kind of on me for switching agents and that kind of thing too. Yeah, there's a, there's a weird piece in the NFL. Like I remember all of a sudden you turn 30 and like people start looking at you sideways and you're like, Dude, look at the longevity. People are playing much, much longer. So I'm, I'm stoked with like guys like uh, you know Tom Brady and some of these guys playing into their you know 30s because shit. I remember uh, like I was uh, when I was a young guy. I think Steve Everett, who was our center, was like 30 <laughs> in his seventh year, and they were talking as if he was like Father Time. And they're like, well, yeah. Ev's only got a year left. He's 30 years. And I'm like, fuck. Like I just remember thinking 30 was this. Uh, this milestone where pretty much they just fucking take you out and shoot you for the glue factory. And, yeah. uh, and then all of a sudden I'm like 29, 30 and I'm like, man, I feel great. Like this is, I'm playing, like, I think I'm playing some of my best ball. So it's just was such a weird thing. And I don't know why, uh, maybe the perception is changing. Um, also too, the other big thing is, uh, I remember what, like, I mean, geez, when I was a rookie, went to training camp, uh, 42 days in training camp with, uh, we would go pads, 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 special teams so we were doing every two days was three padded practices and a special teams practice so we would get the afternoons off but uh we did that for 42 days in a row yeah savagery yeah so i mean dude and it was like nine on seven one-on-one uh fucking inside drill oklahoma i mean it was fucking full you know uh you know full blitz pass i mean 11 on 11 run drill i mean it was like three hours of fucking suicide and um and then all of a sudden the new CBA comes in and they're like, well, you only get like five padded practices, you know, it, it just maybe eight during yeah. the season. Or? Yeah. It, it was crazy. Like the numbers I'm like, dude, this is crazy. I, I, uh, like I'm so like, I'm, I'm thankful I got to play in that era, but like I look at this and I'm like, no wonder dudes are able to play so much longer. I mean, the amount of banging that they're doing in practice is so, is so much less. I mean, that's where everybody shoots all their bullets. Yeah, dude, it's probably 80% of what it was when you were playing for sure. When, when, when was your last year? Uh, I got hurt or I got hurt in 08 and I retired in 09. Okay. Yeah. Like, dude, like the last two CBAs since then, like the PA's push for this health and safety is non-negotiable. Like that's the only line in the sand the PA's really drawn. Other than that, they're, they're, I don't think they're incredibly effective. But um, yeah, dude, it's been bananas, the, the back down. And then with COVID last year, with injuries being the lowest they've been, like it, like a lot of teams are backing off. Like, did the did some of the training camps I heard about last year were just a cakewalk? And then obviously now, like, well, yeah, I mean, they're, maybe it makes sense. I mean, what was wild about COVID is these guys didn't really have a traditional training camp. Like, I think they brought them in, they did a ton of walkthroughs, they did their whole deal, and they went and played, and the ball didn't fall off that much, and guys were dramatically healthier. And I'm like, so maybe, uh, you know, like the pre-Fontaine suicide pace and today's a good day to die every single day. Like at the end of the day, like uh, all that does is uh, like creates expiration on these players really quickly where they're wilting, let's say by 30. I mean, shit, I remember um, uh, when Dick Vermeil was in the Rams, uh, they would do two, three hour practices every single day. 
and they were doing they were wearing pads on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, shells on Friday, and then walk through Saturday, play Sunday, and they did that for years. And oh, these were uh, like three hour practices to the point where like dudes straight up like the whole team was like you can't fire us all and fucking walked out and had a mutiny. And, oh, no uh, doubt. Uh, so my my first year in Houston, Dick Vermeil came and spoke to the team, and he basically called all of us pussies. And yeah. that sounds and about right. And that, but like so like because he's telling us about all these practices and like like you got like JJ these guys like shut up <laughs> like because like obviously he's he's feeding because like so the another contrast like so Minnesota we probably went live like three times in practice like and and or an entire the entire training camp where like you at least have some freedom to go live and work on your tackling and that kind of thing I get down to Houston week three or four whatever it was and the first like the first play of practice is goal line. And JJ Watt smokes Arian Foster, and I'm like, "What the fuck is going on?" So like, I I haven't even had that like perspective yet that like some teams still bang like that. And then Bill O'Brien, he he backed off the next four years. Like by the time like where we do a couple goal line live in training camp, and it was like that was the majority of it. But yeah, did that like, but I like just going through 42 days of like where you can like bang and go live. Did just you only get so many miles on the tires, man, and the joints and that kind of thing, and then. Now you're ending the the season on like depleted joints, depleted like energy systems. Like yeah, no. Oh, I mean, everybody was beat up. I mean, you go to you play in that first game and you're like, oh, thank God the game's coming because now they can reduce the fucking practice schedule. Yeah, we have an off day. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, dude, it was. I I, and I I was a rookie, so I just figured like you know I like I don't want to say anything. I'm just figured this is the way it fucking is. And then I talked to my other friends on teams, and they'd be like, what the fuck is going on over there? And then uh. You know, and then go play for Dick Vermeil, who was still in this like unbreakable mindset. You know, and anybody that's uh, knows Vince Papali and um, that movie, I mean, dude, Dick Dick Vermeil, invincible, like, uh, invincible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He ended. I mean, the amount of careers that Dick Vermeil and I love him. He was a fucking great dude, but the amount of careers he ended because of that, like the volume of training going into it. Uh, I'm I'm just glad to see that the NFL has not continued on that on that path. And they realize that, you know, hey, we're investing a ton of money in the players. Um, you know, we have a vested interest in their health. Like, my favorite was uh, when I came in the NFL, they told us that you know you got a concussion when you got knocked unconscious. And then at the 10 years later when I was leaving the NFL, like my last year, I, you know, they go through that little concussion talk. They're like, you'll know you get a concussion when you get your bell rung, your eyes go cross-eyed, you hear something, your vision feels blurred, or you feel disoriented. And I remember the... the um, the trainer being like, how many concussions do you think you've had based on that definition? And I was like, I don't know, 70,000. Yeah. I mean, uh, fucking bell rung every single play. I mean, uh, like the, it, it was just amazing that they pivoted that quick. I mean, but they had to, I mean, dude, you got guys committing suicide. I mean, you got these dudes getting ALS. I mean, the amount of broken toys, I mean, you know, the Island of misfit toys was fucking getting packed and they had to do yeah. something. Yeah. And, and now like the benefit now is like, we have science behind that. Obviously the whole CTE thing came out since then. And, but like, it's still like guys still don't know how to like mediate some of that. Like, like, again, like there's benefits to high fat diets. There's proper, like, there's proper ways to like supplement to decrease brain inflammation and then like hyperbaric chain, whatever you want to do. But like now at least there's some push towards that, but like, it's, it's still not, there's not a great support. I don't think there's still a great support system in the NFL with the trainers or like the like the PA pushing hard for like neuro neurodegenerative like preventive practices because like I've tried to push for that out of the PA before too 
and kind of uh, fell on deaf ears. Yeah, well, the the thing about the PA, and this has always been the issue, is that the individuals who are in the kind of, I would say, like the leadership of that thing are so to- closely tied to the NFL that there isn't a vested interest. Like, look at all these guys that are kind of the, uh, you know, leaders in the PA as players, and then when they retire, they get a cush job in the NFL or in the PA, so it doesn't really make sense for them to rock the boat and to do the things that they need to do. So um, that was always my gripe with a lot of that. But um, I always think, dude, if, uh, if an NFL team approached me, uh, the basic things that I would recommend uh, would probably extend their ability and their players' health so dramatically. I mean, like you, you mentioned it, we had uh, uh, Joe Dirt, who's like the foremost uh, Dirate, Dirate. <laughs> Yeah, don't, Joe Dirt. Church it up. No, <laughs> no, it's uh, we call him Joe Dirt, and when I text him, he's in my phone. It's Joe Dirt, but it's Joe, Dir- uh, Doctor Joe Dirate. Tampa he, Bay. He's in down in Tampa. He's the foremost expert. He's the guy that tests all the hyperbarics for the Navy. And we were talking about lengthening telomeres. I mean, to the point where you can lengthen your telomeres up to a third, and you know you only get so many replications before you know that's the end of you. So I mean, like you're talking about taking a third. If you're 30 years old, you're going back to 20. And the effects of that, like the hyperbarics in terms of like uh, oxygenation, I mean, using uh, blood flow restriction training to increase the thickness of, um, you know, the artery walls to make sure that everything has like good plasticity uh, stuff in the brain. I mean, there's so many things that we could put in uh, to the, the training program, supplementation. I mean, just basic creatine monohydrate neuroprotectant. Um, getting, you know, blood work, figuring out gut. I mean, realizing that there's a link between the gut and the brain and, yeah. you know, the pain receptors are the same. Um, man, there's so many things. I remember, um, I think it went when I was in, towards my last year in KC, I fucked up my ankle real bad and it was like this big. And of course they're like ice and stem, ice and stem, and it's not working. And Trash. we, we had this old doc that used to come on game day who was uh, kind of an old osteopath, just kind of an old like witch doctor. And he also worked on horses. So I asked him, doc, hey, can you bring me in some DMSO? No problem. And uh, so he brings in the DMSO and he's like rubbing it on my ankle and these like young trainers are sitting around watching and they're like, what is this? I'm like, all right. And uh, so you I got to ask big man. And literally they wrapped my ankle. They, they packed it the next day. All the swelling was gone. Basically drained. You know, it was empty. Everything looked great. I played the game and you would have thought that I showed cavemen fire. And I'm like, dude, yeah. how do you like, like this is. This is just basic, like transdermal, like went through the whole thing. And, um, you know, a lot of this stuff has just been forgotten. And I think um, the NFL becomes such a bubble that there's some really good people that are doing some amazing things. And I think if the teams were to adopt it, it would make not only a much more dynamic environment, but also probably save them costs on the backside. Or maybe they're like, fuck it, we don't care, you know? So, no doubt. And like the, and it's a, it's a lot of it's very simple remedies too. like, again, like the creatine, the DMSO, like, but like, so um, me and Kush used to get DMSO on our IVs. So they're like this, like the supplements would go like would go deeper and be absorbed. But like, obviously, we'd smell like fish for a couple hours. So like, yeah, the uh, it's day, the, uh, the, the, uh, the sour milk. Yeah. Smell. And then so we like we'd be in the training room later that day or the next day. And they'd be like, Oh, and like, they just shun us because like, we put this in our body, like, Oh, it's gonna destroy you, all this stuff. But like, did it work like a charm? Like that, that like it just loomed me up. But um, well, I mean, yeah, but, uh, uh, dude, uh, like I, I don't know if it still is prevalent, but I remember being in the shower and seeing every single dude in there with a little bandage on the top of the butt where they'd hit you with the uh, uh, tortol uh, shots. 
I mean, and so yep. you're like, dude, you're pumping these cats full of injectable anti-inflammatories, but you're nervous about DMSO. Yeah. Like, uh, like, like, yeah. And then give, give us some to counterbalance the effects of all these anti-inflammatories and stuff. Like, uh, like, uh, like I know guys now that are adopting like the BPC 157, which is mm-hmm. phenomenal for uh, at least helping gut health or inflammation and things what's along those the, lines. But like, what's the take on, um, on those uh, peptides with the NFL? Is that considered performance enhancing? No, uh, not that I know of. Like I, I know people, I know guys that use it locally, like in their knees and ankles. And then I know a few guys that do like that have to use the tortals and stuff to get through the season. Um, I always forget what, what's the area like right by the belly button that you shoot. What do they call that? Um, but anyways, but oh, like oh, just, um, well, like, like your injection site, like for, you know, uh, let's say for diabetics or insulin is usually yeah. one thumb length off of the side of the belly button, yeah. but, but really anywhere in that injection site, um, you know, dealing with type one diabetics, like you kind of rotate through different injection sites so you don't get scarring underneath. So, yeah, but, but they don't like, they, they, they won't test for the peptides and I think they're phenomenal for inflammation. I've used them a little bit on my ankle. Well, they can't test for the peptides. I mean, they're, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that I'm sure they can test for anything, but, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, who, who knows, man, they're, they're so weird with it. It's kind of like the, uh, the marijuana deal. Yeah. Uh, like the fact that they're still testing dudes for marijuana and I'm like, man, uh, I'm not uh, a marijuana smoker. Um, but yet I am also not a fan of, uh, opiates. Um, yeah. I would much rather like if it was the option between the two, I mean, they would shit, they used to hand that stuff out like breath mints. Yeah. Uh, I would much rather say, Hey, you know what? Like, let these guys, if they want to smoke, and that's what allows them to, to you know, mediate this pain much better than just fucking pumping these dudes full of perks and, and bikes. Yeah, dude. Well, like, yeah, I, I, I always believe in, like, the anti-opiate option as well. But, like, the thing, like, they they allow that crap, and then, like, but then they, they don't actually, like, it, I don't think they enforce the, the stimulants either very well. Like, I think the fact that some guys can take uh Adderall and some guys can't I think that's a PD I think that's trash that it's not like acceptable across the board like you have some guys trying to take it because it does improve their their mental capacity their ability to focus and make calls like I've, I've played with guys that can't make all the calls then you put them on Adderall and they're fine so like if that's helping him that much why can't I fucking take it uh I played with um with a dude uh, uh Jordan uh Jordan Black who had severe ADD and uh, him not taking his uh, Adderall or whatever his meds were, and they had him kind of this, like it was, he was absolutely like off the wall. And I remember being like, uh, it was really the first time that I had been around somebody who had like severe, severe ADD. And I realized I was like, oh, cause I mean, I, I'd always seen dudes taking Adderall and, you know, going in and getting some, you know, cause you gotta get a script for it. But I always thought it was just kind of like, eh, it seemed like ephedrine to me, but uh, I was around him and I was like, okay, I get it now. Like there's certain people that really need this and there's probably a lot of dudes that are just fucking, you know, want to howl at the moon and, you know, pop a bunch of stuff, see laser beams. But but some guys only take it for games where like it does improve their cognitive performance on the field to like, again, process formations, all that kind of stuff. So I just never saw the fairness and letting, because like some guys play this as like, yeah, you have to get a, whatever is a TUE. Yeah, and, um, like, an exemption. Yeah, and you like, so you go in there and like you like you play the you play the card that oh I'm not oh I have ADD I, I'm not focused like I'm always all over the place and then like they get it and like I could have played the game too and probably gotten it as well but like I just um, it just frustrated me that was just one of my gripes. So I think it was my third year I took a helmet to the shin and broke my fibula. They t- they casted me for about five days and then I played three weeks later 
and uh, I couldn't walk, so the doctor just started fucking giving me uh, Darvocets. So I had like I took five Darvocets, and uh, finally I didn't feel my ankle enough to go out and play. And uh, I remember coming back to the doc, and I was like, "Man, um, I can't feel my ankle, but I'm super tired." And he was like, "Great, take this." And it was um, Ritalin, is what he gave yeah. me. And all of a sudden, I was like. Wow, I don't feel like uh, I'm pretty numb, but I feel pretty wired. And you're just out there beating on these dudes. And uh, I always remember thinking like, ah, fuck, this is better living through pharmacology. Now, he was uh, a pretty interesting dude. He was a, uh, a psychiatrist who uh, worked for the military, was like uh, one of our team docs. But he worked for the military in terms of like, you know, developing different strategies for like mental warfare. Like he designed the playlist that they fucking blasted Noriega to get him out of his house. That was like his claim to fame. So I love talking to this dude. <laughs> I was like, Doc, awesome. uh, I was like, Doc, I'm feeling really tired. He's like, Take one of these. You'll feel great. And uh, that was a fucking hilarious. Uh, I ended up going out and making Madden's horse trailer. So obviously it worked. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, the, the stories and like, I mean, and I'm so stupid. What I should have done and what my dad recommended is he's like, Every day after practice or after every game, you should have a journal or uh, like a tape recorder and you should dictate all of this craziness that you encounter so that like years later you will have like a record of it so you can go back and pull this information because unfortunately people forget stuff and uh that's smart old man dude i uh, i regret not doing that because man there were so many hilarious things that i think back now where i'm like man nobody would have believed this no not at all and I, I, i'm a big believer in journaling now too i've gotten more into it after i played i did a little bit while i played but um yeah dude just to go back and like look at your even if it's just your workouts like tracking your logs and understanding the methodology you use like it just it's it's valuable and even like going back and looking at again like what coaches said or what relationship you're in that kind of shit you can just learn from it so we like so i, I have this uh company outside like i we started developing this company called mindstrong project while i was still playing me and a buddy and so we we obviously teach mental skills and but the the big pillar that we teach is like the breath work stuff like how to control psychology through controlled physiology and that kind of concept. But like the journaling's done friggin' wonders for guys, just as far as um, I guess, basically like kind of unburdening them from like all the shit that's going on in their mind. And then like some of our baseball players and like hockey guys, like they fall into the same trap that we did where it's pain pills, sleeping pills, pick me ups, caffeine, pre like all that stuff. And they realize like, Oh, I'm just like, like, I'm like, get like, grabbing band-aids for the real problem that dude uh i noticed pretty early on that the guys that tended to have the most problems were the guys taking the most painkillers so like when i was a young guy i remember all these dudes that were like the older guys were all in like divorces and were like involved in all this fucking just like drama and it seemed to be that those guys were the ones taking the most amount of painkillers so i kind of uh didn't take painkillers um i mean obviously i took you know took them if i had surgery or, you know, something was really fucked up. Like, you know, I break my leg and I'm playing on a fibula that I can feel moving. Um, and the doctor's like, you got to take these to play. But for the most part, I didn't take them, um, like, just didn't take very many. And it was uh, just this observation of, like, that and also, like, I didn't drink any coffee. I didn't take any caffeine. I didn't start drinking coffee until I got out of the NFL. Um, but like, uh, you know, cause I, I used to watch Runyon literally pound like 12 cups of coffee every single day and be fucking wired. 
So it was pretty interesting, man, like the amount, like the ways that guys were coping with this stuff. And uh, people asked me like, well, what about the pain issue, you know? And I was like, man, I'm, I'm not nervous about the pain. And more importantly, I'm not afraid of it. I feel like uh, you got to make a deal with pain. Like it's an old friend. He's going to come on in. He's going to sit down. We're going to have a few conversations and then he's going to fucking leave. And if you can make a deal with pain and more importantly, like you were talking about um, uh, hot and cold. So Sean Landetta, my rookie year, uh, was a huge contrast guy. It was like hot in the cold. And he talked about like, uh, you know, he called it a cold plunge. But he was like, hey, this has allowed me to play 20 plus years. And I was a young guy. So I used to do uh, two in the hot, three in the cold. And I used to do that cycle probably anywhere from like five to 10 times, at least twice a day. And I think like that allowed me. And so it's pretty interesting now. I see all this stuff with like people doing like, you know, Wim Hof breathing, you know, cold work, whatever. Like my whole deal was when I got in the cold, I wanted nobody to know that the water was cold. So like no emotion, you know, guys are like, <gasps> like freaking out. I tried to get in and just be cold as ice and just like accept it, you know, and you kind of go into your brain and like, but it's, uh, it's killer to see that like the contrast baths and how much people are doing like you're talking about with like the hot and the cold stuff. I love it. I mean, I, I, I do it every day in the, you know, when I get in the shower, I run it as cold as I can. And then uh, I do need to get a cold tank here at the house. That'd be nice. Yeah, dude, what you did is a crazy intuitive, like, and you can go by feel and that's how you should go. You shouldn't use all these avoidance painkillers and pick me ups and that kind of stuff Like you can feel. And then like, so when like, like I'm a believer that like the cold is a stressor and you're obviously controlling your, your physiology and yourself in there, like to show no pain or whatever, but you're in the process, you're probably controlling your breathing and all that kind of thing too. So now like, now like you, you can, you can learn from that shit and that makes you fucking tougher, harder to kill anyways. But like, so yeah, so like when I got into all that stuff, like initially, like my doctor, one of my, he's like a disciple of Serrano, like he basically told me, he goes, you should be able to stay in the cold tub for 20 minutes up to your neck. So I trained myself to do that. And obviously you got all the, all the guys on the team looking at you like you're a psychopath because most of the guys only get their getting up to their legs. <laughs> so, uh, dude, uh, what was funny was, uh, uh, like, uh, for the most part, like, uh, the black dudes always were hilarious because you always had like one dude that was like a fucking polar bear. He like get up to his neck and then other dudes like put one foot in and were screaming. And uh, I, dude, I used to love it, dude. I would get up uh, and try to like, you know, get up to my neck and then at the end, try to put my head underneath for at least like 30 seconds and Hell pour yeah. as much ice in and like see if, you know, because I mean, really, realistically, your body numbs in about, it's like 120 seconds because I used to count yeah. it. And uh, man, I loved it. Uh, it's it, it's hilarious to see like how far people have gone in and, and I'll actually talk to people about like this life-changing experience and I'm like you should have just played fucking sports I mean they used to have cold tanks right on the side like horse troughs when we were in training camp at, at Cal because we were in uh, Stanislaus which University which is out in the Central Valley so it was like you know 115 every day so they had these huge horse troughs filled with ice and we used to literally just strip down after practice and get in I was like you should just played sports you would have figured this stuff out so yeah and it, but again it's it's intuitive again like and it's reframing your brain like most of the people have these like shocking experiences because their mom told them their whole life you don't go outside with a hat and gloves on you're gonna die or get sick or whatever the fuck and then like now like we'll, we'll go cut holes up in minnetonka up in minnesota and we'll like we'll we'll dip we'll do three minutes we'll, we'll hold our breath under the water all that stuff and then we'll get out and we'll move around for 30 40 minutes before we go back in the sauna and stuff like that and it just reframes your mind all right now I can be comfortable in the cold. I actually have energy systems to fight this environmental stress. But now we're like, we're just a bunch of soft humans that go from 70 degrees inside to seven degrees in the car to work to your car and back home. And 
now like this, the, the system's not being used. So the immune system's not being stretched. The nervous system's not being stretched and you don't, you don't get all these phenomenal benefits. Like, like I'm about to go sauna and ice after this. And like, did I sleep like a baby afterwards? My soreness goes away because like when you do the cycles and the contrast, you get the vasoconstriction, vasodilation, vasoconstriction, and all these little muscles on all the veins and arteries and stuff they're working. And like, so like, like fat people, like when they get in the cold tub, sometimes it bites and hurts because they don't use the cardiovascular system. So it, it's just like another red flag for not being healthy. So all these things and like, we'll do, we'll put some of our NHL guys through this stuff and they'll burn 700 calories, just sitting still for an hour, going back and forth between the sauna and ice. So it's stealing. And then, so now you get like, you get the immune system function, you get the nervous system reset, um, you get cardiovascular work. Like it's, it's freaking stealing. You've been doing, and you did it 20 years ago. Yeah. Like, so like, like all that stuff is, I don't know, like, it, I think it's really cool that you found that naturally, well, uh, like obviously like following other guys, but. Well, I mean, so Sean Landetta, I don't know if you guys remember Sean, but he, um, dude, when he was at the Eagles, he was like in his 20th year. He played into like, he was a punter. And uh, he was, I used to call him the boss because he'd always be like, hey boss, he's like play with his shirt all the time. He'd be like kind of twitchy New Yorker guy. And uh, he used to be like, hey, what's up boss? So I used to call him the boss. And uh, he was, he, he told me a story because he lived or he grew up in New York City or maybe when he was playing, like he had some incredible stories about, uh, he never drank and never did any drugs. So he was LT's wingman, Lawrence Taylor's because mm -hmm. Lawrence Taylor drank all the booze and did all the cocaine. Yep. <laughs> and but there were always dime pieces around LT, so he used to roll with LT everywhere just to catch like what was falling off the tree that yeah, LT couldn't yeah, catch. Trickle down women, yeah, yeah. So so I mean, because that was just his deal, he just slayed. And um, so his stories were so epic because uh, he was sober and like just fucking regaled us with stories. And so like I used to go in there and like uh, um, when I would see him do the contrast, I'm like, well, what is this? And he told me, he goes, hey, when I was a young kid, we go to New York City, and my dad used to work out at this, like, athletic club, and these old Jewish guys used to go in this, like, hot sauna, and then they would come out and get in this cold thing called a cold plunge, and they would go back and forth, and they, uh, this, you know, these old men would do this and talked about, like, this is the fountain of youth, and so he started doing it and did it through his whole career, and he was telling me that story, and I was like, dude, it seems great. And, uh, I, and he was like, if you do this every day, you'll have a long career. And I'm like, dude, if you're playing 27 years and you have the stories of like basically being LT's wingman driving in his Porsche, like, uh, like just the stories were incredible. And I'm sure people are like, tell the fucking stories, but they're not my stories to tell. And I don't like telling other people's stories. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I, I globbed onto that. And, uh, I mean, I still do it like not to the point cause I don't have like a bitch in cold pool, uh, tub. But, uh, you know, still cold water. Um, you know, I've, I've been, I, it's funny, I, I got uh, I got connected with a dude that has this, like, amazing system for cold tubs. And I was like, oh, things fucking incredible. It was like 10 Gs. And I'm like, ah, uh, I don't know if I can drop 10 grand on this thing. Like, it, like, the water recycles and it was this. And then I was seeing, like, uh, Matt Vincent and, Tony, and uh, Starhead have, like, these, like, um, these chest freezers that they put on their side and we're filling them with water kind of a deal. And I was like, mm, I'm going to look for one of those. And so I've looked at a couple on, on uh, Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist. But I went out there and I'm like, yeah, man, I'm still 6'6". There's no way I'm fitting in some of these. So I got to find like a huge fucking one that'll basically uh, be able to fit a whole body. Yeah, just uh, like, so I just got, I go to Tractor Supply and get a big horse trough. So I got one in the backyard. And then you, like, then I, I bid on ice machines on Facebook Marketplace. And there's a couple like local 
auction sites where like I got like a $1,500 ice machine for half price. And I just like, that's my system. But like, it's just cool to see it all come mainstream. Like Joe Rogan had his shit on the other day. And then now I got like five people saying, oh, have you ever seen these ice tubs? I was like, yeah, we've been doing this for years. Yeah. Uh, we got horse trials right outside. I mean, uh, you know, same deal because actually we have horses that run on our property. But yeah, same deal. I uh, What's amazing is like, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. I mean, we were at Winter Strong where I saw you go out and get in that uh, icy lake and then go and get popped into that bitching kind of round, uh, you know. Yeah, the barrel sauna I got on yeah, the trailer, the, yeah. Fuck, that thing was awesome. I was like, God damn it, that thing is killer. Yeah, dude, they, uh, that, it's a cool, little, a cool little toy to have. But like, I mean, I'm so like, I use the sauna, like, so I'll do the sauna and ice like one or two times a week. It's more like a recovery method for me because there's, there's not a lot of great science in like hopping in the cold tub after a practice or after a workout, it kind of stunts some of the adaptation you're looking for. Sure. But like when you, when you hit the sauna post workout and post like practice, like you get some aerobic, like aerobic benefits and that kind of thing. So I'll hit the sauna like three, probably three times a week after the workout. And then I do like the sauna ice cycles Wednesday and then one day on the weekend. Yeah, dude, I, I have a infrared sauna that I hit after workouts. So when I come down after, you know, we train up here and then walk down, I got one in the backyard. So I'll get in there for like 25 minutes. It goes up to like 140. I think it's a near and far one. Um, yeah. But, but like for, you know, just because you're right, I, I, I've read a lot about uh, the ice being not necessarily beneficial post-workout because it was, it's reducing inflammation and that inflammation ends up being, you know, pathways for performance. So, I mean, it's blunting it. So, like, when do you throw in the contrast stuff? Is that on days off or at night for bed or away yeah, from the workouts? Yeah, uh, so, like, so, like, when, like, so I, I'm kind of on a new, I'm doing um, some of the conjugate method and powerlifting now with Corey Gregory here in uh, Columbus. But uh, I do it Wednesday just to kind of break up the week. I'll do that after my, I, I train at, like, 4 a.m. So then I'll do that at, like, 8, 30, 9 o'clock, a few hours after, and, like, kind of refresh me for the end of the week. And then I do it on the weekend and, like, make a morning out of it, like have breakfast, like throw on music, like, like just vibe out kind of deal. But yeah, it's, it's more of a, a flush for me and like it gets all my soreness out. It's, it's awesome. It's a great tool. Nice. Would, uh, yeah. so, so what else do you do? I mean, you obviously train, you bang weights, you do this. I mean, or, uh, do you have any interests outside of, uh, do you any, do any fight training, anything that looks like combatives? Yeah. So I, I do uh jujitsu. Nice. Um, I picked it up. So like, as Kush was transitioning out of football, he was looking for something and like he wanted somebody to roll with him. So me and him got into jujitsu probably a little over two years ago now. Um, so we did like six months really hard at the beginning. He's a he's a freaking savage now anyways, and like rolling with him. And like, so we, we fell into this group at uh, uh, Gracie Baja uh, West Chase down in Houston and we fell into their competition group. So like me and him learned just like rolling with black and purple belts. So they choke us out and teach us how they did it. And then like, uh, he stayed in it for like the full two years I was on and off. Then I got back into it, um, here in Columbus, but, um, it was, it, it just, again, like, I think it's phenomenal. Just like the, the mental chess of it, the robot capacity. And then like, all, it also like gave us something to compete with outside of sport, which I think is, is phenomenal. But I mean, just being able to, again, tap people out, gives you confidence walking around too. Yeah, no, uh, um, in the offseason, uh, I used to go out and roll with, um, with this guy Joker and Eric Apple and a bunch of dudes in Orange County. So I used to do that and just uh, I always did uh, like boxing fight stuff and um, did jujitsu early on, but then got into that. And it was fun because those guys were all doing kind of ground and pound type stuff. So it was a little bit of jits and just a lot of hand stuff, which uh, I actually liked because um, those dudes would try to shoot and I'd just fucking murder them. 
Uh, yeah. But then, you know, you, you get on the ground and all of a sudden, you know, you're, I'm pretty good. But all of a sudden, you know, 30 minutes later, I'm like, I'm so fucking tired. Just tap me out. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like. Yeah, it, it, it's different. And that like, but like, dude, that it, it's so beneficial for like an old lineman too. And then so like I, for two off seasons when I was in Houston, um, I stayed down there for probably like two, three months and trained with like Adrian Peterson um, at his gym. Oh, athletic down there. But he owns that with Trent Williams. So Trent is getting down there training and he brings like the Redskins O-line uh, back when he was with them. But that dude boxes nonstop and he is nasty. Like his feet and his hands are so yep. just heavy, deadly. He's balanced. I mean, there's a reason why he's getting paid and playing into his 30s. Yeah, no, I mean, just the uh, like just like the focus mitts and like being able to go into the heavy bag and the ability to be able to sink your hands. You know, and then footwork, if you got a coach especially, being able to work the footwork and the in and out. I mean, I always thought I'd hit a line was like cutting a dude off in the ring. So uh, I was fortunate we boxed on the Cal boxing team in the off season. And oh, uh, yeah. we, we had a pretty dope uh, trainer who I cannot remember his name. It was an old black dude. And he was real big on like, you know, cutting a dude off, chasing guys, you know, don't give people options, you know, force them into this position, let them fight out of the corner. Um, and dude, it was, uh, you know, a lot of angles. Like, hey, if you're trying to go here, you step here, you know, push people with the punches same shit playing offensive line you know like hey if i draw an angle if i'm going here vertical and the quarterback's there this is the path of least resistance and i got to put my body between it and then strike violently so it was oh, yeah. uh, but like, it, it made sense to me yeah but like that's where like did i i just like the mindset like like in my head i always called it chasing edges like like i want to edge on whether it's my technique my preparation my recovery all those things so i just kept like i found things that work for me like like at the time it was uh, I did a little bit of boxing while I was uh in Houston and then like obviously like I followed Kush's lead on supplements and that kind of thing and then I had my doctor like obviously Eric Serrano like he pumped like he they pumped me towards red light like obviously my relationship with sunlight all these things and it then it then it grew into IVs it grew into hyperbaric chamber because Serrano's got two uh medical grade ones up here in Columbus and I just tried to be better and better at what I did. And, but like a lot, like it's, it, it's funny and it's frustrating at the same time. Cause you see so many guys in the league that don't know shit about supplements that like, again, like don't understand like massage, BFR, acupuncture, all those things. The guy's just like, Oh, I can, I can play, I can show up. And it's just, uh, I mean, it, it, it fueled me because I like, I felt like I was going to edge up on him, but at the same time, it just, it's dumbfounding that these guys have millions of dollars and they don't take care of their body or like enhance their understanding of how to play longer, or recover faster, those things. Curse of the gifted. Well, uh, curse of the gifted. I mean, uh, one of my favorites was um, seeing uh, Russell Wilson talk about he invests a million bucks into his recovery in this. I mean, they've never gone into like what that million dollars buys. But dude, if you gave me a million bucks to say, hey, I need you just to blow this on like on uh, performance, health, recovery. Dude, I would have uh, like a personal a, chef. Oh, dude. First, uh, I'd have a personal chef. Uh, I get like weekly, um, you know, a basal metabolic rate testing done. So the calories were exactly designed. Uh, you know, I'd be using like that Hypermax oxygen machine that we've been testing, um, you know, blood flow restriction, have your own home gym. Um, but the uh, so part of the research off the off of the hyperbarics that we uh, got into with Joe, Dr. Joe, uh, was like, I think it was 40 sessions of, uh, I forgot what the atmosphere was. It was like two atmospheres, 40 sessions. Um, 
which was what, like uh, 40 sessions, five, so eight weeks, five sessions, they do a Monday through Friday was the protocol, will lengthen your telomeres by up to a third and pretty much fixes all the cognitive issues. So, I mean, like, it's pretty much like a preventative measure for um, not only anti-aging, but like preventing CTE and helping these guys recover. So, like, the fact that these teams, I mean, shit, dude, like, it would be so easy, you know, just you know, a fucking rounding error to bring a few of those machines and then schedule people for, you know, 30, 40 minutes and make sure, hey, you need this to get five days a week and run a whole bunch of players through it. And now all of a sudden you're you're safeguarding these guys. But then you also have to admit that this is a problem, which in the NFL is the biggest issue is like plausible denial of like, we didn't know this was going to hurt you. We didn't know beating your head into the individual was going to fuck you up. And you're like, come on, what did you think that the that, uh, you know, basically smashing your head into a wall, you know, hundreds of times a day over the course of 10 years wasn't going to, re- you know, result in at least something cognitive. Yeah, well, like, so, I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack there, but like, um, so like my first time out to the PA, um, I think it was, it was 2015 or 2016, um, was the day that um, like three days prior, the NFL came out and said, there's a correlation between playing football and CTE. So like, in my mind with the PA, like that's leverage, like that's powerful. And then we get out to the PA and they have like this, their team of neuroscientists or whatever they are, or like their director, uh, like medical treatment, those kind of things. He gets up there and he did, I, I can't remember all the, like, it was some crazy small, but he, he's like, actually like the chance of an NFL player developing a neurodegenerative disease is like, it's only like three to five percent higher than the general pop like it was a lot of the problem is psychological where it's law of dominant thought where you create these mental crutches and all these things and i'm just like this is the last thing guys need to hear when this just came out sure and it just that like that was one of the the frustrating things to me but like and that's when i I brought plausible denial plausible denial. and that's when but that's when like i just learned about hyperbaric chambers and like, so I stood up in the PA meetings, like, hey, have we looked in the hyperbaric chambers, like at, at these atmospheres? And the guy goes, oh, are you referring to the Swedish study? I go, no, I'm not referring to the Swedish study. I'm referring to just like the science that's come out on outside of that. I can get you research or like, can we get guys on high fat diets, at least lower the inflammation of the fat cells and like in the brain, those kind of things. And he goes, yeah, there's something there, but like, they just, they didn't want to hear it. And so like so they they uh, they started studying hyperbarics in the 1600s and huh. a uh, doctor basically built a hyperbaric chamber and did surgery where they removed all of the blood from pigs and the pigs stayed alive because the plasma was able to move so they drained mm-hmm. them of all their blood and the pigs still lived that's and crazy they, that was in the 1600s the amount of research uh, that like and, and we, we have a podcast what was the podcast uh, I'll send it to you, yeah, Brian, after this, but yeah, yeah, let me sure. get the number. So, so uh, Dr. Joe's down in Tampa and is like, he's the foremost expert because he's a um, you know, Navy guy, PhD, Navy diver. So he was able, able to do all the research uh, through like the Navy and the U.S. because they're the only people that can fund that type of research because yeah. the machines are so specific. Um, I'm still hitting him up trying to get him to send me one. So he's like, hey, I got one you can have, but uh, I need somebody to come down and help me fabricate and fix the trailer. And I'm like, I'm your guy. I'll show up yep. on a truck and fix this motherfucker. For our listeners, it's episode 488. But the uh, just the issue comes down to, and I'm sure you've seen this, is there's um, like these hyperbarics that are like what you see in the mall where people are sitting there on their phones. Like that's not real hyperbarics. Like, no. like the, uh, you know, like you can't wear any jewelry. There's no technology because if you were, I mean, pure oxygen is going to fucking make you explode. 
yeah. uh, you know, with any deal. So like, there's a lot of, I think, um, charlatan type of stuff, like the, uh, you know, the strip mall hyperbarics that people go and they don't see any results, not realizing that actually true hyperbarics, like the medical grade, like the shit, like the Navy and the, the way it's tested is a whole different level of not only preparation, but just, it's gotta be pretty dialed. So, uh, that's yeah, where that's I a, think it got kind of a, a bad, uh, rap. It's kind of like, um, uh, EMS. So EMS is incredible for, you know, motor unit recruitment, but then you have these like weird infomercials where people are like putting it on, uh, their bellies and they're like, it reduces belly fat. And you're like, no, it fucking doesn't, but you're going to sell an infomercial with it. Yeah. It's, and then it's like, they don't understand the commit. Like, so like it, it is a process. It's a, like, you have to, go in uh, like the lowest I've heard is three times minimum to the medical grade uh, hyperbarics too. So now it's like a five day commitment for six to eight weeks to actually see results. It's not in these, like I, I know probably 15 NFL guys that have their own hyperbaric at home, where it's the, the zip up with the oxygen yeah. compressor. Like no. you have to spend like eight to 10 hours in there to get anything out of it. And like guys are using it for an hour and a half or two hours or they're watching Netflix in there or whatever. And it's, it's just not the drill. Nope. But so like, that's where like, and that, that helped pique my interest into like the breath world too. Cause you learn the power of oxygen through that too. And then now you understand the, the relationship between oxygen and carbon dioxide in the body, how to get it out. And just like how to use oxygen as like, again, like as a, a true performance enhancer. And then obviously, obviously get rid of CO2 as a performance enhancing tool as well. So like, I've, I've dove into that world. I went through like the free diving protocols. I, I went through Wim Hof. Um, like I've learned from like Laird and Gabby Hamilton and Brian McKenzie and those guys um, and tried to use that as like a tool. So like, like me and my buddy now, we kind of, we, we, we coach breath work and mental skills, but like, it's, it's such a, dude, it's such a easy tool to use, but people are just still learning to understand it. Yeah, no, it's, um, uh, it's something that, I mean, just the, uh, like the thousands of years that they like, like looking at like the research and different people that have done breath work. And then I, you know, I guess it's, it's this, uh, deal where it, unless it's happened within the last 10 years and since the advent of the internet, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, a it never happened. Yeah. No, like, uh, it's even like T nation. I mean, all T nation does is they go back 10 years ago and then they just fucking rewrite their articles. And it's, it's a good and, move. And then it's like, <laughs> we need to start doing that. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's because, uh, you know, like, so years ago, uh, Callie um, bid on these magazines. Uh, they were like from like the 40, uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Somebody had this huge like tre treasure trove of all these old like bodybuilding magazines from like the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. So she like bid on it. It was like 20 bucks. And so this like huge box of all this shit shows up. And uh, we start going through it and it was like how to strengthen your eyes. Uh, like it was all of this obscure stuff of like, you know, um, they were talking like beta carotene and then like using your eyes to focus on distance. And uh, I just remember going back and like, like reading the, the, the eye one especially and then going and finding a bunch of research on how to strengthen your eyes and why people end up needing glasses at a certain age. And then they, they also figured out that there were certain parts of the country where people's eyes were better. And it was actually things with long horizons. So like you get in a oh, yeah. car like here in Texas and you have to like the road is like flat and long. And they found that places that were really flat where people were driving, like their eyes had to focus a distance, ended up having less issues in terms of like eye degeneration and glasses than people that didn't have that. 
So, I mean, just like finding all these research and then you're like reading this article from 70 years ago where they're talking about eye strengthening, looking to the side, looking to the side, focusing on the distance, you know, it just, it just makes you realize that there's so much information that's being lost. But what's dope is now we have these podcasts. Right. Well, I was going to comment on the magazines. There's also a whole glute development section. And we recently learned that someone invented all these exercises and then we flipped through it and found it from the... The 50s, uh, oh, 60s magazines. Yeah, that was, um, uh, no, it was uh, uh, when Brett, Con- uh, the glute guy, Brett Contras, who, who is like, uh, to me at least, he's doing God's work. I mean, he's taking flat ass chicks and basically building these amazing asses. And he gave a dope presentation at Sornex a couple years ago. But he was like, didn't necessarily say it, but came out and said, you know, I invented the glute hip bridge. And like nobody was doing it before me. And we had all these magazines that were showing people doing it. And uh, I actually, when I, my knee was fucked up after surgery, I was doing them because it was the only way I could train my lower body. Yeah. And, then, and then he's like, I invented these. And I'm like, well, I invented the, you know, hands the question hands. mark. Uh, I invented the ring push up in the overhead squat. To prove them wrong. <laughs> the ring, what? The, the ring, ring push up? That was so, a, like that the was, upside down one? No, that was Andy Stump's joke. Uh, oh. uh, when Andy would speak at the CrossFit and do their deal uh, at the seminar level ones, he would make preposterous claims <laughs> to see if anybody called him on it. And uh, the one he's like, you know, um, uh, I invented the ring push-up. And he's like, yeah, my claim to fame, obviously being a Navy SEAL. But other than that, I invented the ring push-up. And the hilarious part is not a single fucking person ever was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What? Dr. Yeah. Evil? So, uh, yeah. It's all made up. But, like, again, like, you find out, like, that old problems have old solutions anyways. Like, all these problems have been around for the... <laughs> For the entirety of time. Well, we have, you can't see it, but over on the wall, there's a John F. Kennedy article uh, in Sports Illustrated from 1959 called The Soft American, oh, where, yeah. where he, he outlined, uh, I used uh, Kennedy's words in a talk that I gave for uh, NDU, the National Defense University, a couple years ago that brought me in to speak on the ACFT. And I've started reading, um, like, basically, I, I read a paragraph from it, and I asked him, I'm like, uh, what year do you think this was written? Or, you know, hey, like, I, I, I forgot how I kind of played it off, but, like, uh, this guy raised and he was like, you know, I, I don't know, was that written within, like, the last few months because this is the problem we're facing? And then I read another piece, and, like, it was Kennedy's piece from the Soft American, and it was also the Surgeon General of the Army uh, from, like, post-World War II basically pitching the idea of a PT test because of the problems they had. In World War I, they were able to take these kids off of the farm. They developed grenades that were about the size of uh, baseballs, and they could drop these kids into trenches, and they were pretty fit. World War II, 40% of the people they looked at that were, un, were not fit to fight the war. So mm-hmm. after that, they were like, holy shit, we need a PT test because something happened in this Industrial Revolution, getting kids off the farm, moving to cities. And now you think, like Kennedy writes this in 1959, uh, you know, and that's where like the presidential physical fitness test came from. For those of you guys that are listening that couldn't do the pull-ups, uh, I was a flexed arm hang guy too. So in, an interesting thought with this, here's a quote, Brian, I got a test for you. I want you to name the year of this quote. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, and they show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up uh, dainties. They probably just gave it away at the table. 
cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. I'm a Socrates 690. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, if anybody. anybody. Yeah, Socrates. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, so, like, the problems, like, like you said, man, like, like the problems we're seeing, and, and then uh, this last week I was out at the, uh, the War College for the Army out in Pennsylvania, and got, I got invited to a conference on national security and got to discuss, uh, you know, my perception of national security um, being the, basically the, uh, the lack of physical fitness and health and just strength and, you know, readiness of potential, uh, you know, like the next evolution of kids that are going into the U.S. Army because of lack of physical fitness in middle school and high school. And then also... Uh, the lack of fitness and health and dependence on pharmacology uh, by the population to fight off, let's say, an invasion. So, like, you know, let's say there's a, you know, less than 1% of this country is in the, in the military, you know, 330, peop- 330 million people, three, 3 million are roughly in the military, about a million plus in the army. And uh, if something were to happen... And they had to call out the militia as, you know, the Second Amendment, you know, the ability to call out the militia shall not be infringed and all these people love to talk about. But a big part of that was being physically fit enough to fight uh, the threats that are potentially happening because our founding fathers didn't believe in a standing army. They, div- they believed that, like, you know, people should live their lives. We shouldn't have a standing army. If there's a threat, we'll band together and we'll figure it out. And so a big part of this stuff and the physical fitness and the soft American that Kennedy was talking about was creating a culture that is strong, healthy, fit enough for service. So the fit to serve mentality. And so my piece that I spoke on, um, and it was side note, the other guy who was in my group uh, is a doctor from Brandeis who develops all the healthcare models for the world. So the United States, like all the global health initiatives, he's the guy that like figures out the model for like how to implement logistics, funding, everything. Super interesting guy. And his biggest issue was like, all the drugs are not made in the United States. So the majority of drugs are made in China and India. So like if all of a sudden an embargo happens or those or the, the ships stop coming and the shipments stop, he's like, dude, the amount of dependence of Americans due to preventative sickness and illness based upon uh, obesity and just being out of shape is like, he's like, it's like 80%. You know, obviously, like you have people that are like type 1 diabetics where they need insulin and that's kind of dependent. But most of this stuff or people are doing it to themselves. And like these drugs are coming from India, coming from China. And uh, yeah, it was, um, I was looking at it from like, well, people sit too much, they're not fit enough. And this guy was talking about whole different other problems. So it was really, really impactful, uh, really fun actually in a real nerdy kind of way, but um, I digress. No, but it's it's a it's like a super cool perspective too. Like, so like, I like to dial it back even to like the animal and all of us too. Like technology, like fucked our ability to be like elite operating animals like so like the reason why people are probably a little more comfortable being fat and not having to serve in the arm- army is because now you have guns like guns are the reason why like we took over x amount of areas before the united states and all that kind of stuff too but like now like the two biggest problems used to be food scarcity and environmental stress we solved those problems in spades so now you have doordash gets sent to you all these kind of things and now if you start to dial back to like why we enjoy food and comfort and sitting down and watching TV and all this kind of stuff, it's like entertainment's a whole different thing, but like it's literally in our physiology and in our bodies to enjoy comfort. Like we're supposed to be looking for food and building shelter and all that stuff all day. And then when on the rare occasion that we get food, water, shelter, everything checked, 
like we're supposed to conserve energy and save up for the next hunt or the next fight or the next shelter to build. But so now like people don't understand, like we're so wired to enjoy like modern life that like we literally have to be like create discomfort in any way, shape or form possible. Yeah, so, like, no, but, like, people do it. I mean, people go out of their ways to create, well, not, not everybody, but a lot of people do. Um, I mean, but it, I'll tell you this, and maybe this is just my own, uh, you know, who I am, but like, uh, you know, we go out of our way to stress ourselves. Like, uh, Sunday I was telling these guys, um, you know, like 8am till six. I mean, basically, uh, everything we got to do here at the ranch in a hundred degree heat. I mean, it was so hot at noon. I went and bought a cowboy hat, which I've never owned a cowboy hat. And I've lived in Texas for almost five years. And I've like made fun of people I'm like fucking cowboy hat. I like went to the place and I was like, do you have like a sun hat? Because I'm getting fucking cooked out here. And the guy's like, straw. Yeah, straw. He's like, what about a cowboy hat? And I'm like, oh, do you have like a big like sombrero looking thing? And he's like, no, nah, we got a cowboy hat. I'm like, just give it to me. Trek supply cowboy hat. I'll wear that shit. But that's like a big part of it where, you know, um, you almost in today's world, you have to seek discomfort. You have to go out of your way to make shit hard on yourselves. Um, you know, you go, uh, I mean, the amount of people on uh, ellipticals when they could just go out and walk outside, like blows my mind. Or, yeah. you know, it's it's just a, it, it's a really interesting uh, problem. And you make a great point, like about the animal side of it. Uh, there's like that great picture of like, you know, you show like the ape and goes up and then you see like the caveman and then you just see this de-evolving into the dude with like, yeah. you know, uh, with the soda. And, and it's really like a de-evolution. Um, there was a really cool book years ago by a professor and I cannot remember, but he went through all these different examples of um, uh, like how much more fit we were. And I remember the one was uh, they found footprints in a lake bed in Australia and based upon the stride length and the, like the, you know, the way it was going and they were actually uh, mirroring these guys were actually running down an animal. And so they were able to like chart the distance of, between the strides and then the That's animal cool. strides. And these guys, were these guys were basically as a group hunting an animal and running basically just slightly slower than Usain Bolt. But they were doing it not over 100 meters. It was like over a quarter of a mile that they had within this lake bed with these footprints. And these guys were barefoot. And like, so they theorized like, you know, here's the fastest dude on the planet and here's four guys in Australia in a lake bed chasing an animal and all of them are running that fast and we just have these footprints. And so he went through this whole thing about like this de-evolution of like who we are that, uh, you know, every generation, I mean, I remember Rob Wolf talking about, um, um, sex binding or sex globulin binding hormone levels, uh, you know, of our grandfathers were in the tens. And now it's pretty consistent. I look at blood work on people. It's 40 and 50. And for those of you guys who don't know, that gets produced in liver and then binds up free testosterone. So all of a sudden you have a decent testosterone count, like a total, and you're free as in the garbage. It's because a lot of times the sex uh, binding or sex binding globulin hormone ends up binding up. So what's interesting is then you start looking at it and saying why. I mean, one of the biggest ones is like leaching plastic and, EP, you know, and, uh, you know, all these environmental stressors that we encounter basically create stress, which now this stuff goes up. I mean, you know, our grandfathers, great grandfathers were like nines and tens and every generation now they're seeing it peak up and they're what they're really worried about is we're going to get to the point where, you know, free testosterone is going to be zero. And then you look at fertility rates falling, which they've seen in Japan and other places. Yeah. Uh, I got a buddy that says the real pandemic is low testosterone. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I wrote an article years ago, um, 
because I read research that talked about uh, anger issues with guys with low testosterone was like the biggest prevalent. So this guy was real pissed off, and I was like, well, he's just got low T. So when you meet people that are douchebags uh, that have a lot of issues, you know. Um, they just, what, did, what did you look at me? I wasn't looking at you. I'm kidding. Uh, um, but like that's like a deal. Like, and they were actually equating like higher testosterone levels and more like to dudes that are like nicer, more stable, and better shape. I mean, it just basically now I look at somebody and I'm like, God, oh, that guy's kind of a dick. Uh, for he our listeners, has low testosterone levels. For our listeners, the article, and I'll put it in the show notes: low testosterone, cortisol, and CrossFit. Yeah. It's a long road. It is a long road. <laughs> Yeah, but like, but like, like all, like there's, there's so many variables, like even like the blue light factor of electricity and all that kind of stuff, like, like limits our ability to get into deep sleep, all that, all these things influence, like there's not as much as a relationship between sleep and testosterone as I thought there was, but like, it's just like, uh, I don't know. I say the more we regress to being like those cavemen running, probably they're probably running barefoot and nasal breathing through that, that lake bed too, on top of that, where like the more you regress to like, again circadian rhythm all that stuff the, like the more your problems are going to go away and then even like with the breast stuff like we have a we have a diabetic hockey player we work with that doesn't have to take his insulin before he trains anymore because he does the the like the super ventilations and the breath work and like like spikes his co2 tolerance so that he doesn't need that anymore so there's got to be something there to like oxygen sunlight nature like like it's not like everybody knows a fucking apple is healthier than a snickers bar but like we make all these very simple choices throughout the day that just compound and like staring at your phone. Like some of that's tied to the eye problems you're talking about that now kids stare at like the six inches away from their face. Like, yeah, they're going to have more eye problems than a kid that's outside. Like, but people don't understand all these compounding effects. And then now like the pharmaceutical whole argument is a whole nother. So when babies hole. are born, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm sure you've seen, like they got really nervous about uh, it's become, uh, almost to the point when you have kids, like the sudden uh, sudden infant death. So what they theorized was that, um, you know, kids, you know, basically were sleeping on their stomachs. So now you have to swaddle them and keep them on their backs. But for the most part, kids have always slept on their stomachs. And so their eyes, as they develop, develop close. Uh, and then as they get over, they pick up their head and then their eyes develop far. So that's like mm. a progression of eye development. So the problem they were running into was that the kids who were starting on their back were like staring up. Uh, you know, and so now they were focusing distance and it wasn't until later when they got their tummy time that they were developing that way. And so there was a whole issue with like, uh, you know, eye development and I was reading all this research and it's like, well, what do you want to do? Uh, well, uh, you know, like why does the infant crib syndrome happen and why does the sudden death, I mean, happen? So, I mean, you end up keeping your kids on their back and swaddling their little ass and then, but yeah. it's, uh, it's pretty interesting now, like as soon as you take away the swaddle when they get to a certain age. Dude, they sleep on their stomach. Like I watched my son uh, sleep f flat on his face with his face like buried in the... P and I look and I'm like, how is this kid even breathing? And he just fucking knocked out. And um, I always think if I could bottle up whatever my kids have with their like sleep thing where I'm like, it's like a ninja blow dart and they like, you know, right to sleep and they sleep so sound. I'm like, God damn it. I'm so jealous of you guys. Yeah. And it's, but it's just uh, like again you can follow like the intuitive nature of a child like them at like them asking questions that kind of thing too but like now you get like into breathing patterns and um they're like the youth diet that we've made so like the soft food diet we've given infants for decades probably 100 years at this point now 
um then even like if you look back into the breath of like indians like the native americans used to like put their infant children out in the snow for five minutes whenever they like would breathe out of their mouth they'd close their mouth like mm -hmm. they like the native americans used to look at european settlers and like they used to call them black mouth because like from what their diet and their like their mouth breathing they call it like the breath of death like they, it was indicative of poor performance and poor health so yeah, like, like, well, that's why we call them mouth breathers. Like I used to call yeah. Luke the mouth breather, <laughs> like huffing and puffing. You never notice yeah. that? Oh, big time! I just think well, of uh, Eli Manning, yeah. mouth breathing dummy. <laughs> yeah. But but it, but it's funny that it's a, like it, it's a stereotype, but it is a legitimate problem. Like yeah. literally, like there's there's 20 benefits to nasal breathing. The only benefit to mouth breathing is you get oxygen and carbon dioxide in and out faster. Like it's 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 a problem. Well, I mean, it, isn't there like a you know? Um, Let's get into that a little bit. Like, uh, why is it that we've gone in? I mean, is it laziness? Like, like why are people gotten into this mouth breathing? I mean, is it deviated septum? Is it something happening? I don't know. Is it congestion? Like, why would somebody default to breath uh, out of the mouth opposed to the nose? It, it, it's a lot of reasons. Like, I mean, you can read books like uh, Jaws, Oxygen Advantage, Breath by James Sensor, all those books. Um, Jaws will open your eyes to the, like, again, like cave people and like earlier humans like they had straight teeth like they didn't have these narrow jaws that needed braces and all these things they say it's from their breath and their diet and then now you, like the nasal cavity is a like a, a body part where like you basically you don't use it you lose it so like if you uh default to mouth breath nasal cavity gets smaller makes it harder to breathe in through the nose so now it's like the the past less traveled versus the easy road which humans are fantastic at americans in particular but like a lot of things uh, will force mouth breathing. Like you can eat like crap and like the body uses oxygen as a antibacterial, antiviral, like like that's the, the, the role of oxygen. It gets shipped to where it needs to be. So like to get oxygen in and out faster, you start mouth breathing the, whether it's processed food or if like, again, like if you, if you're not, or if your jaw ends up developing more narrow, which like the book jaws reinforces because you had this soft diet, you don't develop the, like the jaw muscles and the mandible and all those things eventually it leads to like the easiest path which is mouth breathing which again like the nose cleans and humidifies the air you actually have the ability to access nitric oxide by stimulating that and now if you get into like the firing pattern pattern of the body like the diaphragm and pelvic floor are incredibly important to uh, like align and stabilize the spine and it and like obviously if you take a big breath into your mouth the chest rises you take a big breath into your nose the stomach rises belly breathing all the like the yoga stuff you hear but like in the same process and, and controlling inhales and controlling exhales like you develop strength in the diaphragm and the pelvic floor which is i think a good starting point for training because now like if you have a good firing pattern that's your psoas and your glutes firing first and you fire inside out i think it's all compounding but like like the mouth breathing can be caused by again it's it's a lot of things it's diet from like infancy on um it's obviously like all the processed foods we eat now like they, they cause inflammation and the body handles inflammation with like oxygen it's, it's it's just a cool simple concept and then so now if you're breathing in through your nose you're getting all the benefits of the nasal breathing you're developing your core and now you're at least have the fundamentals of a functional human so there was a book i read years ago called deep nutrition and the lady theorized its exact deal uh, where they took snapshots of children's faces uh, like over the course of history. And uh, what they noticed was that the kids that ate uh, more of an ancestral diet that were breastfed had dramatically wider jaws and wider noses. 
And yep. uh, um, it was pretty fascinating uh, when her, her deal was talking about like breastfeeding especially because as they're sucking, the child has to breathe through their nose. So mm-hmm. now all of a sudden, if like they were bottle fed, it didn't happen in the same way. So um, I don't understand. I mean, my kids were breastfed exclusively for like the first six months. Uh, it wasn't, and then we started adding food and like my daughters never went on, I'm mean, actually, none of my kids were bottle kids. Um, they kind of make a decision and my wife was in on it, but that sucking motion from that, like creates not only strength in the jaw and widens the nose. And it's pretty interesting to see like the Western eyes narrowing. It's kind of like the feet, for example, you see yep. people that were raised without feet. I mean, there's toes splay opposed from people that were been forced into shoes. And then you see. Uh, you know, bunions and toes collapsing and the whole deal. But yeah, um, her, and then her deal was uh, looking at like processed foods uh, versus they had some dope pictures that all actually came from the Weston Price Foundation. So I don't know if you guys know, but Weston Price Foundation, Weston Price was a dentist whose son died of a tooth abscess and he became obsessed with tooth decay. So he traveled the world looking for groups that did not have uh, teeth and mouth and these oral issues. And so he went out and visited a bunch of, you know, basically groups that hadn't been touched by Westernized society. And he took pictures of their faces. She had a bunch of, you know, kind of like mouth and this and, you know, the top of the mouth and their jaws and their noses and tried to figure out like why these or what these people were doing uh, that allowed them to be healthier. And so if you guys Google the Weston Price Foundation, it's gotten a little kooky. Um, So but they have some really good information. But this lady's book went and chronicled, looked at all the pictures and it was amazing to see like the jaws and the noses and like, uh, you know, the way their faces fit into everything. And then they were showing like Western eyes, even to the point where they had um, two children that were twins. One was raised uh, like, you know, I want to say they're like Native American or, or some form of indigenous tribe. One kid was raised away from uh, Westernized society, like an ancestral way. And the other kid was shipped off uh, to live with a, you know, modern family, let's say. And then they brought the kids back and like, I think even at age like 17 and 18, the difference in, you know, you knew that they were twins, but the difference in face structure with like the width of the nose and then the jaw was like night and day difference. The other kid was taller. He looked more fit. His feet were better. Like it was just like, holy shit, like here's an accurate representation of what we're doing to ourselves. Uh, And at that point I was like, man, my kids didn't wear shoes for the first two years of their life. Like we had yeah, these like little like socky booties they would wear, but like no shoes. We still don't wear shoes in the house. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's it, it's a crazy thing when you see that stuff in real time, and you realize that if I want to avoid these problems, I can't make the same mistakes that everybody else is making. Which which is such an intelligent way to like look at parenting and all that kind of stuff too. And like uh, to, uh, like most most of what you said, like a lot of that's in that Jaws book as well. So that you see, like they have, I think they have the two twins in there. Then they have like the obviously the progression of the like the modern jaw or whatever they call it in there. But it just it may it just it makes sense. Like why would you not? Then like the bare feet. Like we've had like we've had guys like like we like we've trained most of our players and hockey guys and stuff outside barefoot. Um, a lot of those, and then we introduced the breath work. Those guys have all PR'd in their VO two max. They've their verticals have gone up the more they've like strengthened their feet and widened their feet, all those kind of concepts. But it just, it, it's super intuitive to me. I don't know why people don't, they see that just cause like everybody else is doing it. And that's uh, always the Cause it's, it takes work and yeah. on top of it, it takes admitting there's a problem. So what I've realized is that a lot of people, uh, if they, if they don't admit the problem, then they don't have to make a change because they don't yep. know any better. 
Yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah. yeah, well, it, it's, it's like, um, uh, there was, uh, a story and I, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this from somewhere and I can't remember, but, uh, I've used it in talks where, uh, these missionaries went and they talked to these, you know, like, you know, travel the world, trying to convert people to Jesus Christ. And this missionary was talking to this village elder and he was telling them about Jesus Christ and, uh, you know, salvation and going to heaven and the whole thing. And the guy asked him, he's like, so to go to heaven, I need to basically follow your your method and the guy said yes he said well what if you never came here and i died would i still go to heaven he goes well if you lived a good life and he goes okay but now that you've told me uh he's like but now you've been aware of it if you don't convert you won't go to heaven and the guy was like well let's just pretend we never met and like that's like a kind of an interesting thing where for a lot of people if uh, you know and like uh, it's pretty interesting to see like the decline in health and you can track it from like the day that the USDA and the US started making health recommendations on food. You can almost track it 100%. Like th- at this point when this happened, all of a sudden now we start seeing these problems. And, uh, you know, a big part of it, and I think it's really easy to go back and say, oh, it's it's food quality. Oh, it's an issue. A lot of it's just overeating. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I really wish there was some like magic equation or, you know, I could say it was this, but just for the most part, it's overconsumption, uh, and it's, you know, lack of just basic movement and exercise and energy expenditure. Like most people are in a calorie surplus, uh, which, you know, at the end of the day is going to result over time in a position that you don't want. And, uh, you know, we've allowed people to kind of get sucked into it and it's easier to say, well, it's food quality, you know, just don't eat so much. Well, when you have companies spending millions of dollars to make the most hyper palatable sh- uh, food in the world, uh, like it is it really their fault? Like it's the Doritos effect. Doritos yeah. spends an in like an obscene amount of money with food scientists to develop like the product that has all the right chemicals, all the right taste to make the most like addictive, dynamic thing. So that when you take one bite of a Dorito, you instantly eat the whole bag. Like that's their goal. And they've never basically ever come out and said anything different. They're like, no, we put a ton of money in so you don't eat one chip. Yeah, Brian, that's that's a book title, Dorito Effect. Yeah. Highly recommended. Yeah, no, it was it was great. And it's like, well, I mean, why wouldn't you? It's like when you go into a casino, right? Uh-huh. Like, like you walk into Vegas, they've spent a fucking obscene amount of money to design that in such a way that one, it's turned into a maze. Two, you can't see the outside, so you have no perception of time. Uh, it doesn't matter if you walk into a casino at eight in the morning or at midnight, it looks the same. Uh, the lights, the addiction, the way it's all set. I mean, all of this is programmed so much so that the people that make these hired the Vegas people to figure out how to make these more addictive, you know? And, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's not our fault because there's people that are much smarter that are playing all these games than us. Uh, but the issue comes down to once you're made aware of this, it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> I always said, like, uh, if, I, if I was dating somebody or whatever and they cheated on me, like, don't tell me. Like, I don't want to know. Because yeah. once you tell me, now I got to make a decision. Like, if, if everything's great and that happens, just fucking keep it to yourself. But at the end of the day, if you tell me this, now all of a sudden we got to make a decision. And I think for a lot of this stuff, uh, if people don't know and they keep their hair, um, head buried in the sand and be like, I'm just doing what the government tells me. I'm just doing what everybody else does. Then they, there's plausible denial. But the minute that all of a sudden you make people self-aware of these problems, now all of a sudden they take two. They either take action, like I don't want to be like this, or then they point to somebody else's. You know, this is well, this is their problem. I'm like this because of this, and I can't make a change. 
And I think uh, there's nothing we can do about that second population, but the population that wants to, you know, be proactive and make change, which just tends to be the power athlete population, the people that are, you know, willing to put weights in the garage and bang weights and cook steaks and, you know, talk to their kids and, you know, research and find information like, you know, listen to this podcast and listen to a bunch of dope stuff that you're talking about. But like, those are the people, those are our people. Those are your people. Those are the people that I want to be in a foxhole with. Not just a bunch of people that are like, well, I guess I'll eat the whole bag of Doritos. There's nothing I can do, you know? Yeah, no doubt. And like, uh, like probably like one of my, one of the books that like changed my perspective on life anyways, was awareness by Anthony DeMello, where like just having a level of awareness as you like approach your life, what you identify with, um, like how you approach your desires, like how you approach religion and certainty. And like that, that just blew my mind on how much I identified as a football player or like, obviously like in the, in the world we live in, like it's so polarizing. If you identify as Republican or Democrat, all these things are problems. Like the more you hold on to these identity, like the more stress you have. So like life is about obviously having a level of awareness initially about your, like who you are and what you're going to do in life and all that kind of stuff. But then, um, now like you have the awareness of health and fitness now you have the awareness of breath and like like breath was a switch for me like once i heard people mouth breathing and i trained my uh breath like i could hear weakness now i could hear like i could hear me beating you because i was in control of my breath so like, yeah. then, like, like that was an edge but it's the same thing like um one of my favorite humans in the world is naval ravikant his his little book is phenomenal too but his pot he's been on rogan and all those guys too but like he basically says like the modern war is these exercising reader mover meditators versus again like the lazy population and the billion dollar business that has algorithms to keep us on our phone keep us in our chair all these things so like that, like that's all like that's what i hear when you're talking it's literally just these this battle of aware humans versus sheep for the most part well but that's i mean that's kind of always been the case i mean there's yeah. uh there's mm -hmm. always going to be people that are hyper aware and then there's always going to be people that are uh, against those people. And then there's going to be a whole bunch of people that just aren't paying attention. Um, I've told this story before uh, on the podcast. Um, we live next door to like 50 horses and my neighbor has a bunch of goats. And so we, you know, we're going up to get trash cans in the side by side. And uh, my daughter or I, my, my two girls in the side by side would go get trash cans. And we stop. And it's pretty interesting because there's probably about 20 goats at the time and there was one dog and my daughter makes an interesting observation where she goes, how does that one dog take care of all those goats? And I was like, well, look at the goats. What are they doing? And she's like, they just eat. Their heads are down all the time. I'm like, yeah, they, they, they don't pay attention. What do they do? They just bury their heads and they eat all the time. And the dog just sits on the outside and watches them. So then how does the dog protect them? Or more importantly, how does he move them and do, you know, like basically force them to move around? And uh, she was and so and then just then all of a sudden the dog stood up, starts barking and starts running as fast as he can at the goats and the goats lift their head and they get nervous and then they all move. And I was like, do you see the analogy? Like the way that you get goats to move is you bark and he runs as fast as he can to them, creates this stress and then they figure uh, they got to move because they're not paying attention. And so like I had this like incredible existential moment where I'm teaching my daughters this analogy about goats and head down and this is you with the phone in your face and like, you know, uh, the media is the dog who's barking at us and this is how they get us to move is like through these, uh, you know, sensational stories and this like, you know, anger and this and the dog barking because fear and I have this like incredible teaching moment and we're sitting there watching and then all of a sudden like the male goat goes over and he like basically puts his nose like right in like the female goat's ass and I'm like, 
watching this. I'm like, oh God, I know what's going to happen. Then he rears back and pulls out his Twizzler dick and fucking just bangs this and starts banging this goat. And I'm like, and this is how we, like, yeah. like I'm trying to work out this one. And I'm like, well, this is, and then, you know, he ends up blowing it and falling off. And uh, my, my daughter's like, what's he doing? What's he doing to that little goat? And I'm like, well, that's also America. You know, yeah. like it was just this like incredible moment I had that just got interrupted by this goat just banging the other goat. And I'm like, okay, farm life. We'll teach about birds and the bees later. And we went and got the, the uh, trash cans. <laughs> I've told you that story. It, yeah. it, uh, ask your mother. Uh, dude, it's yeah. like uh, I've, I've had a couple moments having kids. One of them was um, uh, my parents in like the late 70s bought a, a condo in Mammoth. So like 20 weekends a year, we would go skiing, uh, we would go fishing. It was like where we went. We'd drive from LA, you know, roughly five and a half hours up to Mammoth. So my brothers and I liked, we fished, we, you know, mountain bike did everything. So I, I take my kids to Mammoth and I like wake up early or no. So that day I took their poles down, got them all restrung, all of our bait, tackle, everything, got everything. I'm like, we're going to get up early. We're going to go find our fishing spot. And we're going to go fishing. So I wake them up early. Uh, and I got three kids, two girls and a little boy. I wake them all up, get them in the car, get all the stuff, jump in there, stop, get a coffee, drive up to like Lake George. We get out to our spot. Like my daughter sit down. I like cast out like, you know, basically dope. It's like dark seeing the sun crest. And I'm like, dude, we're going to be here first light. You're going to catch dope fish. I sit down with my son, start drinking coffee for like 10 minutes. It's like perfectly silent. This is like the most perfect moment of my life. I like snap a picture, text my brother and I'm like, history repeats. Cause that was our deal. We'd get there before first light, have our poles in the water and we just fucking catch fish. And all of a sudden my daughter stands up and she's wearing cowboy boots. She slips on a, on a slick rock and goes right in the water. Now, mind you, this is like Sierra Nevada, like icy water. So she starts crying hysterically. My other daughter gets nervous and she falls in and I'm like, okay. And I went like reeled their poles in, like picked them all up, like got them back to the car, got everything and drove home. And we were home in like an hour. And my wife's like, what happened? And I'm like, we had 10 perfect minutes. And so I've realized it's like as a father and as a human being, you have to like, like take the snapshot, take the picture, take like the mental deal when like you see this per perfect moment and whatever happens after that, that's just fucking life. But that's like my analogy for pretty much life. You have these like great moment. You're like, oh, it couldn't get any better. And then somebody slips in the water and you're like, okay, time to go home, do something else. Yeah. I think that, uh, well, I just like, obviously you're trying to like, you're trying to give your kids the best of like your perspective, your eyes, your experiences, all those kind of things. I think, I just think it, I think it's cool how people show that, like the fact that you got them out there to the, to the, the fishing spot at the sunrise, like, like that's now they're going to try and recreate those perfect 10 minutes at some point too. Uh, I hope, uh, the, the problem is, is so we're, we're, um, uh, we're getting back to go, we're, we're planning to go back out there. And I asked the girls and I was like, Hey, you guys want to go fishing again? And they were like, I don't know. I fell in the water last time. And I'm like, I was like, and they, and they were like, and we didn't catch anything. I'm like, yeah, our poles are in the water 10 minutes. Like, yeah. like I like fishing. I also like having my pole in the water. So like fishing, or I guess you could say fishing and catching. And, uh, I love fishing and I like catching just being out there, like sitting on the lake, uh, like seeing your pole in the water, like playing that game, like going and talking to the, you know, local dude at the, like the bait store and being like, what's biting, you know, like how should I do my setup? I mean, this is all the stuff we did as kids and we were always successful fishing, like finding the right spot shadows, you know, the whole deal, you know, and then all of a sudden the sun would change and we would move spots. Uh, but like, as I was trying to explain it to him, I'm like, dude, this was our life other than skiing. We would like, we would go, uh, you know, junior lifeguards in the summer, we'd go to the beach and then we'd go to Mammoth and we'd go fishing and hiking and ride bikes. And then in the winter we'd go skiing 
And um, dude, that was like how we grew up. So I'm trying to impart a little bit of that, but I think uh, we'll see if it's as impactful for them. So uh, you're not married, no kids? No, not married, no kids. Perfect. Uh, as a, I, I was single my entire NFL career. Um, and you, you have to be because it's selfish. And if you yep. want to play at the highest level, it's really hard. And I was, I never knew how dudes could segment their life and their like wives and their, that's why they all get divorced because their fucking wives hate them at the end of the career. But like, uh, you know, you got kids and you're trying to balance all this stuff and the focus and just the selfish nature that it takes to be the best and do this game. Like I just wasn't willing to trade it. No, I, I wasn't either. And I was like those three years going through the, like the three leagues that like I, I didn't want to be in anyways kind of deal. Like I, I put up such like harsh boundaries on like the outside world dating and that kind of things too, but like protected my sleep, like it was gold, like all those things. And eventually it didn't make for like a very amicable partner yeah. um, because like, like, cause I had my non-negotiables and like now like being out of football for a little bit, like that still causes friction. Cause I'm still like holding on to a routine that owned me. Like the, the I had, I, I had these routines that like, I didn't, like allow a lot of life in. Cause I was like, Oh, if I put anything towards plan B, it takes away from plan A and sure. I put 20 years into getting to plan A, that kind of thing. So yeah, like I, like I'm, I'm happy with how I handled everything and got to me, got me to where I wanted to be. So now, now I insert a little more life into my routines, but at the same time, like I, I know what's non-negotiable still. Well, uh, I hope you get to play for as long as you want, man. I, um, <laughs> I tell people all the time that, uh, it was by far the coolest job on the planet is to play in the NFL. Um, you know, and people ask me like, Oh, do you miss the game? And I'm like, maybe, but, uh, just the fact that I got paid a lot of money to train and basically go out on a Sunday and, and game unis and beat the shit out of the toughest dudes on the planet. Like that was exactly what I thrived for. I mean, the ability to know exactly how good or bad I was 70 times on a Sunday in front of millions of people like is addictive. And, yeah. um, and then spend as much time as you can sharpening that blade to make sure you're the most lethal weapon you can. And like, that's the addictive part of it. And then all of a sudden it ends one day and you're like, now what? Yeah. And, uh, uh, so like, man, like, uh, I'm so, uh, stoked and envious that dude, you're still on that journey and still hunting it down. And, uh, dude, just wish you all the luck, man. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to get to like the top of the mountain and then have to start back over. That's, I think that's what cripples a lot of guys initially until they get curious and start trying stuff. Well, the other one too, is I, I think, um, a lot of guys, uh, don't start and, and maybe, maybe it's from what you talk about like you know the best plan a is never to have a plan b so you know like hey this is all i'm doing so i think a lot of guys um maybe start thinking about it and who knows but um i think you got to at some point you, know, you get to the point where like hey what does this look like after or like you were talking about identity like what do i look like without the the number on my back like i will always have played in the nfl and like be a football player and this is part of my identity but what happens when that identity ends, or more importantly, I don't, and, and what's wild too, it's uh, we, don't, we never got to make that decision. Somebody else made that decision. It's yeah. not like my brother who's been a lawyer, somebody showed up one day and was like, yeah, fuck you, you don't get to be a lawyer anymore. And, yeah. uh, and I remember having that exact conversation with my brother um, when I, you know, at the end of my career, he's like, man, this is so crazy. He's like, dude, like I went to law school, I've been an attorney, like I make that decision, uh, pass the bar and, and this, and like you got clients, like to, what if somebody just knocked on the door one day and was like, oh, you're cut. You don't get to do that job anymore. It's like, I don't know what I would do. And he's like, unfortunately, this is your entire life since you've been 14 years old. Now what do you do? 
And um, that was a, a, you know, an interesting kind of soul searching moment. And, um, you know, I think everybody has to make that decision for themselves. I just, whenever I meet people, I'm like, man, do this job as long as you can. Uh, because once you don't get to do it anymore, you know, the age old, like, like you never know when the last time you're going to strap it up. I remember the last time I strapped it up, never thinking, ah, shit, dude, this is, this would be the last moment I played or like the last time you're going to be on the train or the bus. Cause I just figured, fuck, I was going to play for 15 years. I didn't realize it would end at 10. Yeah, no doubt. And like, like I'll, t- I, I talk to guys now too, cause they'll ask me like what it's like to be out or whatever it is. And I'm just like, like, would I have been more curious out like while I was still playing? Yeah. Maybe that takes a little away from like a little bit of the stress of playing and having to perform and that kind of thing. But then like the more I looked at it and broke it down, like I, like as like a, a high performer or human anyways, like I want to be capable of that, that like the full spectrum of life inside of itself too. Like I want to be capable of great violence against the best athletes in the world, but then I want to be capable of like, like this duality, this great peace. And like, the, like, so I don't want football to stress me out like 24 seven and be a slave to the routine either. So like, that's where I started um, this last like year and a half, two years, I started stretching my comfort zone with those, the, like the violent sports and the addiction to the routine and the the production and the the accomplishment fulfillment that comes with dominating another human being hopefully the majority of those 70 snaps and those kind of things so like that's where i found some some peace in the transition too but like like you got to feel it like nobody's ever going to solve those problems or answer those questions for for you so like got, got everybody's got to face those demons yeah and um it's sad when you see a bunch of dudes at the like what what i never wanted was that the you'll see guys that are like all of a sudden it ends and then they still chase the lifestyle you know they're still out there trying to fucking lay it down and you know run the streets and do this and here and everything and i I always remember thinking like hey when this job's done that life ends i mean you could still go out and have it but i'm not going to go out and chase some you know chase that bullshit and uh you know more importantly um i like to think that the the mark of a man is how you evolve yourself um, like the, you know, uh, I never wanted to be thought of as one dimensional. I always, uh, really loved the whole idea of like the Renaissance man, like, you know, the fighter, the, the poet, the writer, the artist, uh, you know, the speaker, the politician, um, you know, you know, yep. the shopkeeper, the merchant, I mean, all of these things that, um, you know, and, and that was part of the deal too, with like, uh, like announcing. So I, I did some announcing and what, what kind of struck me wild was that you had dudes that were, and don't mind like. I'm not saying this at all because those are fucking great jobs if you can get them. Uh, but like, you know, you see, you know, Timmy, Tony, Terry and Tiny, uh, you know, on Sunday and you got Terry Bradshaw, you know, who people know him as Terry Bradshaw, the Steelers quarterback from something that he did in his 20s and he's in his 70s now. So, I mean, he's still reminiscing about, you know, things that he did 50 years ago. And I'm like, how, like, like, what have you done since then? Like, what's your, you know, and obviously those jobs kick ass because you can make a lot of money and do whatever the fuck you want. But like, what's that identity? What have you grown into? Who have you become? What do people know you as? I mean, I always wanted to be able to do something where be like, oh shit, and like, and that dude played in the NFL instead of being like the first time they interview you. So I was at the work college this week and they introduced me as CEO for Power Athlete and like went through all this stuff. And the guy was like, and before that, he played in the NFL for 10 years. So I thought that that was a good mark that I've made impact outside of that where like I never wanted that to be uh, the single greatest contribution that I made was that I got to, you know, wear white spandex in front of drunk people and entertain them every Sunday while, you know, they got hammered. Yeah. And like, that's where like, like the, the balance, like that makes you more attractive. Like you're like, you're 
strength and conditioning and so your your IQ is off the charts and then on top of being the football player like that just makes like you more like more attractive to like learn from and like try and like imitate and those kind of concepts too it's kind of like the, again my Naval guy he goes like people don't go to the circus to see a bear they don't go to the circus to see a unicycle they go to see a bear on a unicycle like you want to be capable of all these things because like that is a whole human that's an interesting human like that's what again drives not only like attention but also like personal fulfillment and capability it, it expands your comfort zone into any environment because you can again you're capable of deep conversations and then you're capable of again being like a great locker room guy like being violent and then also like being an incredible teacher and parent and husband and all those kind of things too yeah being married's interesting it takes work well, I mean, think about that. Like you actually have this other person that you're like involved in this partnership with, with raising kids and all this other stuff. And it's like, it's re really interesting. Like uh, being married, like uh, having kids is uh, um, re like, I dig having kids. Uh, if, if I had met my wife 10 years before, we could have had 10 of these things. No, she doesn't <laughs> agree. But like being married is interesting. And like, I have an incredible wife. Like my wife is uh, a rock star and it's like the easiest person for me to be around. But it's still like there's negotiation on things. Like what about this? Like, Hey, we should, you know, and it's, uh, it, it's an interesting thing. Whereas before I never negotiated on anything. I'm like, if I'm going to do it, I'm gonna fucking do it. Now all of a sudden yeah. you have these other people that like one, uh, th the thing I liked about being single was that nobody ever asked me where I was going or what time I was going to be home. Yeah, no, now no, it's no, like, I'm, where are you going? What time are you going to be home? I'm like, God damn it. Like you guys should just let me disappear and smoke bomb. Cause we used to just disappear for days on end. And yeah. you know, like I, I would, uh, get these, uh, frequent saver flight like emails and be like, Ooh, I can go to. I can go to Germany this weekend. I can go here. Like, and I would just fucking go and have adventures. Yeah. And, um, now I laugh about it where I'm like, man, if there was more social media and all that stuff, I could have like taken pictures, but I just went for the adventure and to have a good time. Not necessarily doing it for the fucking gram. Yeah, no doubt. So, so what's next, man? Uh, you're going to battle it out hopefully get a chance to get in there. Maybe long snap, play a little bit. And, uh, uh, you know, I know training camp starts the third week of July, so we're already kind of in the throes. So, you should probably find out here pretty quick, huh? Yeah, I hope so. Uh, the, the long time thing is kind of a long shot. Like, uh, like I, uh, I'm in communication with a few special teams coaches that I send updates on my my skip my skill um, too. And then outside of that, I do like the the mind strong thing, like the breath performance, like that that drives me to keep learning and like chasing edges. Um, I got a little podcast coming out called Chasing Edges as well, where it's just again talking to high performers and. Um, see what like competition I think breeds this really cool level of curiosity same as it has in you and same it has in like all these great performers and um and then I've, I've got like Dr. Serrano and a couple of doctors where like the uh, the acupuncture guys like all these things where like guys just don't understand it and so try and make it palatable to everybody and that kind of thing but the mind strong stuff has been uh where a lot of my time's going it's grown we, we uh we got a deal with the San Francisco Giants we were like the first uh breast specialist into the MLB and uh, obviously the Giants are playing lights out out in San Fran. So, um, yeah, that, that's where things are going. And as long as I'm healthy and curious and learning, man, I, I think I'll be just fine. Awesome. Anything else? One final question. I'm Houstonian. What's your favorite Mexican restaurant in Houston? Uh, uh, I can't even remember the name of it. Um, that, whatever the main whatever the main one is like pa I papacitos papacitos yeah papacitos uh, papacitos is like the franchise version of great mexican down there then there's like this one higher end place i'm, I'm blanking on what it's called um 
Lupe Tortilla. Ooh, I do like me some Lupe Tortilla. Uh, no, Lupe is solid, though, too. No, I want, I want a big Mexican guy. Sorry to uh, this Damn. What, uh, what's – um? so they got Papacitos. They got um, uh, – is the Mexican spot. Then they got um, Papados. For Papa uh, – yeah, Papados Seafood, yep. Papas Burgers, Papas uh, Brothers Barbecue. And then they also have, like, a high-end steakhouse. Uh, yeah, Papa Brothers Steakhouse. That's yeah. right by my dad's house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, we uh, – I, I was thinking where – I went there for dinner, and – we were in Houston. I, I, can't, I cannot remember who I went with, uh, but I was like, because I'd been to like Papacitos and we'd been to all those places, and they're like, oh, we're going to the Papa's Brothers Steakhouse, and I'm like thinking like uh, chain, and we went in, and it was like you that's, said, that's the up. only one, yeah, yeah, no, unbelievable. Yeah. It's phenomenal. They got like they got the piano up front with the guy yeah. singing in the bar, and then you got like, yeah, phenomenal steaks. Like yeah, that was one of our good two spots in like the steak forty eights and Del Frisco's, all that thing. Yeah, Del Frisco's they they have here. Uh, my other favorite part about Houston is the History Museum. So the oh, yeah, Museum down. of Natural History, where it's a HM, uh, HMS. Wow. So I, I take the kids at least once, if not twice a year, uh, down there. I don't know if you ever got a chance, but dude, they have like this dinosaur exhibit where, I mean, it's incredible. Like, they have the short-faced bear. They got this. I mean, so we went in there, and then, um, shocker, my daughters like uh, gems. They think they, they really dig, like, I don't know, rocks and gems. So they have, like, a whole collection of, like, diamonds and, like, all these rare gems and all this, like, crazy stuff. So we go look at uh, dinosaur bones, and then they get to go look at these crazy diamonds. Have you done, Brian, have you done NASA? Or yeah, space? so, like, that, I was going to say, so I've been to the museum once, but then I've been to NASA a couple times, and just blows your mind. And then... Then so I, I brought some buddies down from uh, back home and we all went like honestly like I gave them like a list of like ten things to do and I was like guys pick your best three I was like we can helicopter hog hunt we can like like we can go we can go out to the clubs we can do whatever you want and then or we can go see NASA museums like all that stuff and they chose NASA was like their number one on their list so we went down there and we had like the behind the scenes deal and dude we ended up getting to shoot the shit with four astronauts for like forty five minutes so damn cool and then like once when they start breaking down like that like the space center was never assembled down here and like they've only had three errors in assembly like it, and it's 100 yards long and it just it blows your mind then you're sitting in all the aircrafts that actually like went into space it, it just it's so crazy and like it kind of just makes it a little more tangible than like the seeing the rocket go off and like watching apollo 13 or whatever you know houston we have a problem yeah, dude, I fucking love Houston. People shit on it all the time. Uh, I think it's because it's such uh, like a swampy, ugly place. Yeah. Every, every not, time I go there, I'm like, this place is ugly. It's not like hill country. It's just swamp. Yeah, it's not. There's not like a lot of nature to go touch out there either. Like, it's, in, like, it's like Dalton. Columbus, Ohio. I mean, like, like, believe me, nobody is like, oh, you know, the Paris of the Midwest. We're not going to Columbus, Ohio <laughs> because it's this fucking beautiful place. And like, you know, you get back to nature. You go to Columbus. Because uh, Westside Barbell or Rogue or uh, you know Lead FTS uh, or the or the Arnold Classic or yeah something. the Arnold Classic that's the only reason you go to Columbus every time I've been to Columbus it's for something it's like you know it'd be a great place to go this summer Columbus Ohio why I don't know nature's be I mean there's no way it's not like nobody's going to Houston no Houston's like the like they call it the armpit of Texas it's just so hot well, who humid the fuck yeah. calls it that <laughs> the fucking uh, uh, Dallas I, folks I have driven all over Texas. Uh, and the area we live in here in Austin, this hill country, I think it's because it reminds me of California, like the hills and the mountain, like this. It's that's why people from California come here, and they're like, I could live in this hill country. I've driven all over Texas and been like, there's no fucking way I could live in North Texas or oh, uh, North or, Texas or no. Panhandle stuff or you know Amarillo or all that area. No, no, no way. This this area, but even Houston. Every time I go there, I'm like, Ooh, Houston. 
It's like the Inland Empire of Texas. Oh, it's massive. But you just avoid I-10 at certain times of day, and you don't have to worry about traffic. You're fine. Do you know where uh, I do want to go? I want to go to Shiner, and I want to go to LaGrange. Every time I've driven through there, I never get to stop. I want to stop at Shiner, so we yeah, should go there. Between Houston and San Antonio, and then, let's do uh, it. And LaGrange. We should do that. That'd be a good adventure. Uh, Brian, you were saying a compliment about Houston. We interrupted. <laughs> he called it the <laughs> armpit of Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Not, 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 not the greatest uh, example of my time there, but no. You've obviously never been to El Paso. Uh, no, I have not. Yeah. El Paso is, uh, uh, every time I drive through there, I'm like, oh, man. this. You've seen like, Mad Max? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. That's El Paso. But it's just like, like training camp in Houston was like 100 degrees plus humidity. Like, it, like we're on the field for an hour and a half, like before guys started cramping up. So it was a tough place to be for training camp and that kind of thing. But like, if you know how to navigate Houston, it's super easy to get around. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's easy to get around in an armpit. Shit. Damn it. <laughs> all right. Awesome. That's all I got. Well, dude, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Dude, it was great to connect. And, uh, uh, you know, dude, we'll be watching you. So for people that uh, might not, uh, know how to get a hold of you social media like what's what's the best way yeah uh brian underscore peters 10 is all my social stuff and then the mindstrong project the breast stuff is mindstrong project um either dot com or you can follow us on instagram that kind of thing but like that's where most of our information's at and where you can reach the boys cool well we'll uh we'll put that in the show notes and we'll definitely direct people mm-hmm. there and dude thanks for taking two hours out of your day to come rap with us and be a guest thanks, on power yeah. athlete radio Hell yeah, enjoyed it. Appreciate you having me on. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Brian Peters on Instagram at Brian underscore Peters 10. Until next time, bye.